This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Watcher by the Threshold by John Buchan. It's read by Connor Kay. It runs 55 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Watcher by the Threshold by John Buchan 1. A chill evening in the early October of the year 1890 found me driving in a dog cart through the belts of antique woodland which form the low limits of the hilly parish of Moor. The Highland Express, which brought me from the north, took me no farther than Perth. Hence it had been a slow journey in a disjointed local train, till I emerged on the platform at Moorfoot, with a bleak prospect of potstalks, coal heaps, certain sour cornlands, and far to the west a line of moor where the sun was setting. A neat groom and a respectable trap took the edge off my discomfort, and soon I had forgotten my sacrifice and found eyes for the darkening landscape. We were driving through a land of thick woods, cut at rare intervals by old, long-frequented highways. The moor, which, at Moorfoot, is an open sewer, became a sullen woodland stream where the brown leaves of the season drifted. At times, we would pass an ancient lodge and through a gap in the trees would come a glimpse of chipped crowstep gable. The names of such houses, as told me by my companion, were all famous. This one had been the home of a drunken Jacobite laird, and a kind of North Country Medmenham. Unholy revels had waked the old halls, and the devil had been toasted at many a hellfire dinner. The next was the property of a great Scots law family, and there the old lord of Session, who built the place in his frowsy wig and carpet slippers, had laid down the canons of taste for his day and society. The whole country had an air of faded and bygone gentility. The mossy roadside walls had stood for two hundred years. The few wayside houses were toll bars or defunct hostelries. The names, too, were great. Scots Baronial with a smack of France, Chattelray and Rivers Law, Blackholm and Fountain Blue. The place had a cunning charm. Mystery dwelt in every cranny, and yet it did not please me. The earth smelt heavy and raw. The roads were red underfoot. All was old, sorrowful, and uncanny, compared with the fresh highland glen I had left, where wind and sun and flying showers were never absent. All was chilly and dull and dead. Even when the sun sent a shiver of crimson over the crests of certain firs, I felt no delight in the prospect. I admitted, shamefacedly to myself, that I was in a very bad temper. I had been staying 
at Glenacel with the Clan Roydens, and for a week had found a proper pleasure in life. You know the house with the old rooms and gardens, and the miles of heather which defend it from the world? The shooting had been extraordinary for a wild place late in the season, for there are few partridges, and the woodcock are notoriously late. I had done respectably in my stalking, more than respectably on the river, and credibly on the moors. Moreover, there was pleasant people in the house, and there were the clan Roydens. I had had a hard year's work, sustained to the last moment of term, and a fortnight in Norway had been disastrous. It was therefore with real comfort that I had settled myself down for another ten days in Glenacel, when all my plans were shattered by Sybil's letter. Sybil is my cousin, and my very good friend, and in old days, when I was briefless, I had fallen in love with her many times, but she very sensibly chose otherwise, and married a man, Ladlaw, Robert John Ladlaw, who had been at school with me. He was a cheery, good-humoured fellow, a great sportsman, a justice of the peace, and a deputy lieutenant for his country, and something of an antiquary in a mild way. He had a box at Leicestershire, to which he went in the hunting season. But from February till October, he lived in his moorland home. The place was called the House of Moor, and I had shot at it once or twice in recent years. I remembered its loneliness and its comfort, the charming diffident Sybil, and Ladlaw's genial welcome. And my recollections set me puzzling again over the letter which that morning had broken into my comfort. You promised us a visit this autumn, Sybil had written, and I wish you would come as soon as you can. So far, common politeness, but she had gone on to reveal the fact that Ladlaw was ill. She did not know how, exactly, but something, she thought, about his heart. Then she had signed herself my affectionate cousin, and then had come a short, violent postscript, in which, as it were, the fences of convention had been laid low. For heaven's sake, come and see us, she scrawled below. Bob is terribly ill, and I am crazy. Come at once. To cap it, she finished with an afterthought. Don't bother about bringing doctors. It's not their business. She had assumed that I would come, and dutifully I set out. I could not regret my decision, but I took leave to upbraid my luck. The thought of Glenacel, with the woodcock beginning to arrive, and the clan Roydens imploring me to stay, saddened my journey in the morning. And the murky, coaly, midland country of the afternoon completed my depression. The drive through the woodlands of Moor failed to raise my spirits. I was anxious about Sybil and Ladlaw, and this accursed country had always given me a certain eeriness on my first approaching it. You may call it silly, but I have no nerves and am little susceptible to vague sentiment. It was sheer physical dislike of the rich, deep soil, the woody and antique smells, the melancholy roads and trees, and the flavour of old mystery. I am aggressively healthy and wholly Philistine. I love clear outlines and strong colours, and more 
with its half-tints and hazy distances, depressed me miserably. Even when the road crept uphill and the trees ended, I found nothing to hearten me in the moorland which succeeded. It was genuine moorland, close on 800 feet above the sea, and through it ran this old grass-grown coach road. Low hills rose to the left, and to the right, after some miles of peat, fled the chimneys of pits and oil works. Straight in front, the moor ran out into the horizon, and there in the centre was the last dying spark of the sun. The place was as still as the grave, save for the crunch of our wheels on the grassy road, but the flaring lights to the north seemed to endow it with life. I have rarely had so keenly the feeling of movement in the inanimate world. It was an unquiet place, and I shivered nervously. Little gleams of lock came from the hollows. The burns were brown with peat, and every now and then there rose in the moor jags of sickening red stone. I remembered that Ladlaw had talked about the place as the old Manon, the holy land of the ancient races. I had paid little attention at the time, but now it struck me that the old peoples had been wise in their choice. There was something uncanny in this soil and air. Framed in dank, mysterious woods, a country of coal and ironstone, at no great distance from the capital city, it was a sullen relic of a lost barbarism. Over the low hills lay a green pastoral country with bright streams and valleys, but here, in this peaty desert, there were few sheep and little cultivation. The house of Moor was the only dwelling, and save for the ragged village, the wilderness was given over to the wild things of the hills. The shooting was good, but the best shooting on earth would not persuade me to make my abode in such a place. Ladlaw was ill. Well, I did not wonder. You can have uplands without air, moors that are not health-giving, and a country life which is more arduous than a townsman's. I shivered again, for I seemed to have passed in a few hours from the open noon to a kind of dank twilight. We passed the village and entered the lodge gates. Here there were trees again, little innocent new-planted firs which flourished ill. Some large plane trees grew near the house, and there were thickets upon thickets of the ugly elderberry. Even in the half-darkness, I could see that the lawns were trim and the flower-beds respectable for the season. Doubtless Sybil looked after the gardeners. The oblong whitewashed house, more like a barrack than ever, opened suddenly on my sight, and I experienced my first sense of comfort since I left Glenacel. Here I should find warmth and company, and sure enough, the hall door was wide open, and in the great flood of light which poured from it, Sybil stood to welcome me. She ran down the steps as I dismounted, and, with a word to the groom, caught my arm and drew me into the shadow. Oh, Henry, it's so good of you to come. You mustn't let Bob think that you know he's ill. We don't talk about it. I'll tell you afterwards. I want you to cheer him up. Now we must go in for he is in the hall expecting you. While I stood blinking in the light, 
Ladlaw came forward with outstretched hand and his usual cheery greeting. I looked at him and saw nothing unusual in his appearance, a little drawn in the lips perhaps, and heavy below the eyes, but still fresh-coloured and healthy. It was Sybil who showed change. She was very pale, her pretty eyes were deplorably mournful, and in place of her delightful shyness there were the self-confidence and composure of pain. I was honestly shocked, and as I dressed my heart was full of hard thoughts about Ludlow. What could his illness mean? He seemed well and cheerful, while Sybil was pale, and yet it was Sybil who had written the postscript. As I warmed myself by the fire, I resolved that this particular family difficulty was my proper business. The Ladlaws were waiting for me in the drawing room. I noticed something new and strange in Sybil's demeanour. She looked to her husband with a motherly, protective air, while Ladlaw, who had been the extreme of masculine independence, seemed to cling to his wife with a curious, appealing fidelity. In conversation, he did little more than echo her words. Till dinner was announced, he spoke of the weather, the shooting, and Mabel Clanroyden. Then he did a queer thing, for when I was about to offer my arm to Sybil, he forestalled me, and clutching her right arm with his left hand, led the way to the dining room, leaving me to follow in some bewilderment. I have rarely taken part in a more dismal meal. The house of Moore has a pretty Georgian panelling through most of the rooms, but in the dining room the walls are level and painted a dull stone colour. Abraham offered up Isaac in a ghastly picture in front of me. Some photographs of the corn hung over the mantelpiece, and five or six drab ancestors filled up the remaining space. But one thing was new and startling. A great marble bust, a genuine antique, frowned on me from a pedestal. The head was in the late Roman style, clearly of some emperor and in its commonplace environment the great brows, the massive neck, and the mysterious solemn lips had a surprising effect. I nodded towards the thing and asked what it represented. Ladlaw grunted something which I took for Justinian, but he never raised his eyes from his plate. By accident I caught Sybil's glance. She looked towards the bust and laid a finger on her lips. The meal grew more doleful as it advanced. Sybil scarcely touched a dish, but her husband ate ravenously of everything. He was a strong, thick-set man, with a square, kindly face, burned brown by the sun. But he seemed to have suddenly coarsened. He gobbled with undignified haste, and his eye was extraordinarily vacant. A question made him start, and he would turn on me, a face so strange and inert that I repented the interruption. I asked him about the autumn's sport. He collected his wits with difficulty. He thought it had been good on the whole, but he had shot badly. He had not been quite so fit as usual. No, he had had nobody staying with him. Sybil wanted to be alone. 
he was afraid the moor might have been undershot, but he would make a big day with keepers and farmers before the winter. Bob has done pretty well, Sybil said. He hasn't been out often, for the weather has been very bad here. You can have no idea, Henry, how horrible this moorland place of ours can be when it tries. It is one great sponge sometimes, with ugly red burns and mud to the ankles. I don't think it's healthy, said I. Ladlaw lifted his face. Nor do I. I think it's intolerable. But I am so busy I can't get away. Once again I caught Sybil's warning eye as I was about to question him on his business. Clearly the man's brain had received a shock, and he was beginning to suffer from hallucinations. This could be the only explanation, for he had always led a temperate life. The distrait, wandering manner was the only sign of his malady, for otherwise he seemed normal and mediocre as ever. My heart grieved for Sybil, alone with him in this wilderness. Then he broke the silence. He lifted his head and looked nervously around till his eyes fell on the Roman bust. Did you know that this countryside is the old manon? He said. It was an odd turn to the conversation, but I was glad of a sign of intelligence. I answered that I had heard so. It's a queer name, he said oracularly. But the thing he stood for was queerer. Manon Manor, he repeated, rolling the words on his tongue. As he spoke, he glanced sharply, and, as it seemed to me, fearfully, at his left side. The movement of his body made his napkin slip from his left knee and fall on the floor. It leaned against his leg, and he started from its touch as if he had been bitten by a snake. I have never seen a more sheer and transparent terror on a man's face. He got to his feet, his strong frame shaking like a rush. Sybil ran around to his side, picked up the napkin, and flung it on a sideboard. Then she stroked his hair as one would stroke a frightened horse. She called him by his old boy's name of Robin, and at her touch and voice he became quiet. But the particular course then in progress was removed, untasted. In a few minutes he seemed to have forgotten his behaviour, for he took up the former conversation. For a time he spoke well and briskly. You lawyers, he said, understand only the dry framework of the past. You cannot conceive the rapture which only an antiquary can feel, of constructing, in every detail, an old culture. Take this, Manon. If I could explore the secret of these moors, I would write the world's greatest book. I would write of that prehistoric life when man was knit close to nature. I would describe the people who were brothers of the red earth and the red rock and the red streams of the hills. Oh, it would be horrible, but superb, tremendous. It would be more than a piece of history. It would be a new gospel, a new theory of life. It would kill materialism once and for all. Why, man, all the poets who have deified and personified nature would not do an eighth part of my work. I would show you the unknown, the hideous, shrieking mystery at the back of this simple nature. Men would see the profundity of the old, crude faiths which they affect to despise. I would make a picture of our shaggy, sombre-eyed forefather who heard strange things in the hill silences. 
I would show him brutal and terror-stricken, but wise, wise, God alone knows how wise. The Romans knew it, and they learned what they could from him, though he did not tell them much. But we have some of his blood in us, and we may go deeper. Manon, a queer land nowadays. I sometimes love it, and sometimes hate it, but I always fear it. It is like that statue, inscrutable. I would have told him that he was talking mystical nonsense, but I had looked towards the bust, and my rudeness was checked on my lips. The moor might be a common piece of ugly wasteland, but the statue was inscrutable. Of that there was no doubt. I hate your cruel, heavy-mouthed Roman busts. To me they have none of the beauty of life, and little of the interest of art. But my eyes were fastened on this as they had never before looked on marble. The oppression of the heavy woodlands, the mystery of the silent moor, seemed to be caught and held in this face. It was the intangible mystery of culture on the verge of savagery, a cruel lustful wisdom, and yet a kind of bitter austerity which laughed at the game of life and stood aloof. There was no weakness in the heavy-veined brow and slumberous eyelids. It was the face of one who had conquered the world and found it dust and ashes, one who had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and scorned human wisdom. And at the same time, it was the face of one who knew uncanny things, a man who was intimate of the half-world and the dim background of life. Why on earth... I should connect the Roman grandee with the moorland parish of Moor, I cannot say. But the fact remains that there was that in the face which I knew had haunted me through the woodlands and bogs of the place, a sleepless, dismal, incoherent melancholy. I bought that at Colenso's, Ladlow says, because it took my fancy. It matches well with this place. I thought it matched very ill with the drab walls and corn photographs, but held my peace. Do you know who it is? he asked. It is the head of the greatest man the world has ever seen. You are a lawyer and know your Justinian. The Pandex are scarcely part of the daily work of a common law barrister. I had not looked into them since I left college. I know that he married an actress, I said, and was a sort of all-round genius. He made law and fought battles and had rows with the church. A curious man. Wasn't there some story about his selling his soul to the devil and getting law in exchange? A rather poor bargain. I chatted away, sillily enough, to dispel the gloom of that dinner table. The result of my words was unhappy. Ladlaw gasped and caught at his left side, as if in pain. Sybil with tragic eyes, had been making signs to me to hold my peace. Now she ran round to her husband's side and comforted him like a child. As she passed me, she managed to whisper in my ear to talk to her only and let her husband alone. For the rest of the dinner, I obeyed my orders to the letter. Ladlaw ate his food in gloomy silence, while I spoke to Sybil of our relatives and friends, of London, Glenacel, and any random subject. The poor girl was dismally forgetful, and her eye would wander to her husband with wifely anxiety. I remember being suddenly overcome by the comic aspect of it all, 
Here were we three fools, alone in the dank upland. One of us sick and nervous, talking out of the way nonsense about Manan and Justinian, gobbling his food and getting scared at his napkin. Another gravely anxious, and myself at my wit's end for a solution. It was a mad tea party with a vengeance. Sybil, the melancholy little dormouse, and Ladlaw, the incomprehensible hatter. I laughed aloud, but checked myself when I caught my cousin's eye. It was really no case for finding humour. Ladlaw was very ill, and Sybil's face was getting deplorably thin. I welcomed the end of that meal with unmannerly joy, for I wanted to speak seriously with my host. Sybil told the butler to have the lamps lighted in the library. Then she leaned over towards me and spoke low and rapidly. I want you to talk with Bob. I'm sure you can do him good. You'll have to be very patient with him and very gentle. Oh, please try to find out what is wrong with him. He won't tell me, and I can only guess. The butler returned with word that the library was ready to receive us, and Sybil rose to go. Ladlaw half rose, protesting, making the most curious, feeble clutches at his side. His wife quieted him. Henry will look after you, dear, she said. You were going into the library to smoke. Then she slipped from the room, and we were left alone. He caught my arm fiercely with his left hand, and his grip nearly made me cry out. As we walked down the hall, I could feel his arm twitching from the elbow to the shoulder. Clearly he was in pain, and I set it down to some form of cardiac affection, which might possibly issue in paralysis. I settled him in the biggest armchair and took one of his cigars. The library is the pleasantest room in the house, and at night, when a peat fire burned on the old hearth and the great red curtains were drawn, it used to be the place for comfort and good talk. Now I noticed changes. Ladlaw's bookshelves had been filled with the proceedings of antiquarian societies and many light-hearted works on sport. But now the badminton library had been cleared out of a shelf where it had stood most convenient to the hand, and its place taken by an old laden reprint of Justinian. There were books on Byzantine subjects, of which I had never dreamed he had heard the names. There were volumes of history and speculation, all of a slightly bizarre kind. And to crown everything, there were several bulky medical works with gaudily coloured plates. The old atmosphere of sport and travel had gone from the room with the medley of rods, whips and gun cases which used to cumber the tables. Now the place was modestly tidy and somewhat learned, and I did not like it. Ladlaw refused to smoke and sat for a little while in silence. Then, of his own accord, he broke the tension. It was devilishly good of you to come, Harry. This is a lonely place for a man who is a bit seedy. I thought you might be alone, I said. So I looked you up on my way down from Glenacel. I'm sorry to find you feeling ill. Do you notice it? He asked sharply. It's tolerably patent, I said. Have you seen a doctor? He said something uncomplimentary about doctors and kept looking at me with his curious dull eyes. I remarked the strange posture in which he sat, his head screwed round to his right shoulder and his whole body a protest against something at his left hand. 
It looks like a heart, I said. You seem to have pains in your left side. Again, a spasm of fear. I went over to him and stood at the back of his chair. Now, for goodness sake, my dear fellow, tell me what is wrong. You're scaring Sybil to death. It's lonely work for the poor girl, and I wish you would let me help you. He was lying back in his big chair now, with his eyes half shut and shivering like a frightened colt. The extraordinary change in one who had been the strongest of the strong kept me from realizing its gravity. I put a hand on his shoulder, but he flung it off. For God's sake, sit down, he said hoarsely. I'm going to tell you, but I'll never make you understand. I sat down promptly opposite him. It's the devil, he said very solemnly. I'm afraid that I was rude enough to laugh. He took no notice, but sat with the same tense, miserable air, staring over my head. Right, I said, then it is the devil. It's a new complaint, so it's as well I did not bring a doctor. How does it affect you? He made the old impotent clutch at the air with his left hand. I had the sense to become grave at once. Clearly this was some serious mental affliction, some hallucination born of physical pain. But he began to talk in a low voice, very rapidly, with his head bent forward like a hunted animal's. I am not going to set down what he told me in his own words, for they were incoherent often, and there was much repetition. But I am going to write the gist of the odd story which took my sleep away on that autumn night, with such explanations and additions as I think needful. The fire died down, the wind rose, the hour grew late, and still he went on in his mumbling recitative. I forgot to smoke, forgot my comfort, everything but the odd figure of my friend and his inconceivable romance. And the night before, I had been in cheerful glenacel. He had returned to the house of Moore, he said, in the latter part of May, and shortly after he fell ill. It was a trifling sickness, influenza or something, but he had never quite recovered. The rainy weather of June depressed him, and the extreme heat of July made him listless and weary. A kind of insistent sleepiness hung over him, and he suffered much from nightmare. Toward the end of July, his former health returned, but he was haunted with a curious oppression. He seemed to himself to have lost the art of being alone. There was a perpetual sound in his left ear, a kind of moving and rustling at his left side, which never left him by night or day. In addition, he had become the prey of nerves and an incessant dread of the unknown. Ladlaw, as I have explained, was a commonplace man, with fair talents, a mediocre culture, honest instincts, and the beliefs and incredulities of his class. On abstract grounds, I should have declared him an unlikely man to be the victim of a hallucination. He had a kind of dull bourgeoisie rationalism, which used to find reasons for all things in heaven and earth. At first he controlled his dread with proverbs. He told himself it was the sequel of his illness, or the light-headedness of summer heat on the moors, but it soon outgrew his comfort. It became a living second presence, an alter ego which dogged his footsteps. He grew acutely afraid of it. He dared not be alone for a moment, and clung to Sybil's company despairingly. 
She went off for a week's visit in the beginning of August, and he endured for seven days the tortures of the lost. The malady advanced upon him with swift steps. The presence became more real daily. In the early dawning, in the twilight, and in the first hour of the morning, it seemed at times to take a visible bodily form. A kind of amorphous, featureless shadow would run from his side into the darkness, and he would sit palsied in terror. Sometimes, in lonely places, his footsteps sounded double, and something would brush elbows with him. Human society alone exercised it. With Sybil at his side, he was happy. But as soon as she left him, the thing came slinking back from the unknown to watch by him. Company might have saved him, but joined to his affliction was a crazy dread of his fellows. He would not leave his moorland home, but must bear his burden alone among the wild streams and mosses of that dismal place. The twelfth came, and he shot wretchedly, for his nerve had gone to pieces. He stood exhaustion badly, and became a dweller about the doors. But with this bodily inertness came an extraordinary intellectual revival. He read widely in a blundering way, and he speculated unceasingly. It was a characteristic of the man that as soon as he left the paths of the prosaic, he should seek his supernatural in a very concrete form. He assumed that he was haunted by the devil, the visible personal devil in whom our fathers believed. He waited hourly for the shape at his side to speak, but no words came. The accuser of the brethren, in all but tangible form, was his ever-present companion. He felt, he declared, the spirit of old evil entering subtly into his blood. He sold his soul many times over, and yet there was no possibility of resistance. It was a visitation more undeserved than Job's and a thousandfold more awful. For a week or more he was tortured with a kind of religious mania. When a man of a healthy secular mind finds himself adrift on the terrible ocean of religious troubles, he is peculiarly helpless, for he has not the most rudimentary knowledge of the winds and tides. It was useless to call upon his old carelessness. He had suddenly dropped into a world where old proverbs did not apply, and all the while, mind you, there was the shrinking terror of it, an intellect all alive to the torture and the most unceasing physical fear. For a little he was on the far edge of idiocy. Then, by accident, it took a new form. While sitting with Sybil one day in the library, he began listlessly to turn over the leaves of an old book. He read a few pages and found the hint of a story like his own. It was some French life of Justinian, one of the unscholarly productions of the last century, made up of stories from Procopius and tags of Roman law. Here was his own case written down in black and white, and the man had been a king of kings. This was a new comfort, and for a little, strange though it may seem, he took a sort of pride in his affliction. He worshipped the great emperor and read every scrap he could find on him, not excepting the pandex and the digest. He sent for the bust in the dining room, paying a fabulous price. 
Then he settled himself to study his imperial prototype, and the study became an idolatry. As I have said, Ladlaw was a man of ordinary talents, and certainly of meagre imaginative power. And yet, from the lies of the secret history and the crudities of German legalists, he had constructed a marvellous portrait of a man. Sitting there in the half-lighted room, he drew the picture. The quiet, cold man with his inheritance of Dacian mysticism, holding the great world in fee, giving it law and religion, fighting its wars, building its churches, and yet all the while intent upon his own private work of making his peace with his soul, the churchman and warrior whom all the world worshipped, and yet one going through life with his lip quivering. He watched by the threshold, ever at the left side. Sometimes at night, in the great brazen palace, warders heard the emperor walking in the dark corridors, alone, and yet not alone. For once, when a servant entered with a lamp, he saw his master with a face as of another world, and something beside him, which had no face or shape, but which he knew to be that hoary evil which is older than the stars. Crazy nonsense. I had to rub my eyes to assure myself that I was not sleeping. No, there was my friend with his suffering face, and it was the library of Moore. And then he spoke of Theodora, actress, harlot, devotee, empress. For him... The lady was but another part of the utmost horror, a form of the shapeless thing at his side. I felt myself falling under the fascination. I have no nerves and little imagination, but in a flash I seemed to realize something of that awful featureless face, crouching ever at a man's hand, till darkness and loneliness come, and it rises to its mastery. I shivered as I looked at the man in the chair before me. These dull eyes of his were looking upon things I could not see, and I saw their terror. I realized that it was grim earnest for him. Nonsense or no, some devilish fancy had usurped the place of his sanity, and he was being slowly broken upon the wheel. And then, when his left hand twitched, I almost cried out. I had thought it comic once, but now it seemed the last proof of tragedy. He stopped, and I got up with loose knees and went to the window. Better the black night than the intangible horror within. I flung up the sash and looked out across the moor. There was no light, nothing but an inky darkness and the uncanny rustle of elder bushes. The sound chilled me, and I closed the window. The land is the old Manan, Ladlaw was saying. We are beyond the pale here. Do you hear the wind? I forced myself back into sanity and looked at my watch. It was nearly one o'clock. What ghastly idiots we are, I said. I am off to bed. Ladlow looked at me helplessly. For God's sake, don't leave me alone, he moaned. Get Sybil. We went together back to the hall, while he kept the same feverish grasp on my arm. Someone was sleeping in a chair by the hall fire, and to my distress, I recognized my hostess. The poor child must have been sadly wearied. She came forward with her anxious face. I'm afraid Bob has kept you very late, Henry. 
she said. I hope you will sleep well. Breakfast at nine, you know. And then I left them. Three. Over my bed, there was a little picture, a reproduction of some Italian work, of Christ and the demoniac. Some impulse made me hold my candle up to it. The madman's face was torn with passion and suffering, and his eye had the pained furtive expression which I had come to know, and by his left side there was a dim shape crouching. I got into bed hastily, but not to sleep. I felt that my reason must be going. I had been pitchforked from our clear and cheerful modern life into the mists of old superstition. Old tragic stories of my Calvinist upbringing returned to haunt me. The man dwelt in by a devil was no new fancy, but I believed that science had docketed and analysed and explained the devil out of the world. I remembered my dabblings in the occult before I settled down to law. The story of Donisarius, the monk of Padua, the unholy legend of the face of Proserpine, the tales of Succubi and Incubi, the Leon and she, and the hidden presence. But here was something stranger still. I had stumbled upon the very possession which 1500 years ago had made the monks of New Rome tremble and cross themselves. Some devilish occult force lingering through the ages had come to life after a long sleep. God knows what earthly connection there was between the splendid emperor of the world and my prosaic friend, or between the glittering shores of Bosporus and this moorland parish. But the land was old Menan. The spirits may have lingered in the earth and air, a deadly legacy from Pict and Roman. I had felt the uncanniness of the place. I had augured ill of it from the first. And then, in sheer disgust, I rose and splashed my face with cold water. I lay down again, laughing miserably at my credulity. That I, the sober and rational, should believe in this crazy fable was too palpably absurd. I would steel my mind resolutely against such harebrained theories. It was a mere bodily ailment, liver out of order, weak heart, bad circulation or something of that sort. At the moment, it might be some affection of the brain to be treated by a specialist. I vowed to myself the next morning the best doctor in Edinburgh should be brought to Moor. The worst of it was that my duty compelled me to stand my ground. I foresaw the few remaining weeks of my holiday blighted. I should be tied to this moorland prison, a sort of keeper and nurse in one, tormented by silly fancies. It was a charming prospect, and the thought of Glenacel and the woodcock made me bitter against Ladlaw. But there was no way out of it. I might do Ladlaw good, and I could not have Sybil worn to death by his vagaries. My ill nature comforted me, and I forgot the horror of the thing in its vexation. After that, I think I fell asleep and dozed uneasily till morning. When I woke, I was in a better frame of mind. The early sun had worked wonders with the moorland. The low hills spread out fresh-coloured and clear against a pale October sky. 
The elders sparkled with frost. The raw film of morn was rising from the little lock in tiny clouds. It was a cold, rousing day, and I dressed in good spirits and went down to breakfast. I found Ladlaw looking ruddy and well, very different from the broken man I remembered of the night before. We were alone, for Sybil was breakfasting in bed. I remarked on his ravenous appetite, and he smiled cheerily. He made two jokes during the meal. He laughed often, and I began to forget the events of the previous day. It seemed to me that I might still flee from more with a clear conscience. He had forgotten about his illness. When I touched distantly upon the matter, he showed a blank face. It might be that the affection had passed. On the other hand, it might return to him at the darkening. I had no means to decide. His manner was still a trifle distrait and peculiar, and I did not like the dullness in his eye. At any rate, I should spend the day in his company, and the evening would decide the question. I proposed shooting, which he promptly vetoed. He was no good at walking, he said, and the birds were wild. This seriously limited the possible occupations. Fishing, there was none, and hill climbing was out of the question. He proposed a game at billiards, and I pointed to the glory of the morning. It would have been sacrilege to waste such sunshine in knocking balls about. Finally, we agreed to drive somewhere and have lunch, and he ordered the dog cart. In spite of all my forebodings, I enjoyed the day. We drove in the opposite direction from the woodland parts, right away across the moor to the coal country beyond. We lunched at the little mining town of Boromure, in a small and noisy public house. The roads made bad going. The country was far from pretty, and yet the drive did not bore me. Ladlaw talked incessantly, talked as I'd never heard man talk before. There was something indescribable in all he said, a different point of view, a lost groove of thought, a kind of innocence and archaic shrewdness in one. I can only give you a hint of it by saying that it was like the mind of an early ancestor placed suddenly among modern surroundings. It was wise, with a remote wisdom, and silly, now and then, with a quite antique and distant silliness. I will give instances of both. He provided me with a theory of certain early fortifications, which might be true, which commends itself to the mind with overwhelming conviction, and yet which is so out of the way of common speculation that no man could have guessed it. I do not propose to set down the details, for I am working at it on my own account. Again, he told me the story of an old marriage custom which till recently survived in this district, told it with full circumstantial detail and constant allusions to other customs, which he could not possibly have known of. Now for the other side. He explained why well water is in winter warmer than a running stream. And this was his explanation. At the Antipodes, our winter is summer. Consequently, the water of a well which comes through from the other side of the earth must be warm in winter and cold in summer, since in our summer it is winter there. You perceive what this is. It is no mere silliness, 
but a genuine effort of an early mind which had just grasped the fact of the antipodes to use it in explanation. Gradually, I was forced to the belief that it was not Ladlaw who was talking to me, but something speaking through him, something at once wiser and simpler. My old fear of the devil began to depart. This spirit, the exhalation, whatever it was, was ingenious in its way, at least in its daylight aspect. For a moment I had an idea that it was a real reflex of Byzantine thought, and that my cross-examining it I might make marvellous discoveries. The ardour of the scholar began to rise in me, and I asked a question about that much-debated point, the legal status of the Apocrisari. To my vexation, he gave no clear response. Clearly the intelligence of this familiar had its limits. It was about three in the afternoon, and we had gone half of our homeward journey when signs of the old terror began to appear. I was driving, and Ladlaw sat on my left. I noticed him growing nervous and silent, shivering at the flick of my whip, and turning halfway round towards me. Then he asked me to change places, and I had the unpleasant work of driving from the wrong side. After that, I do not think he spoke once till we arrived at Moor, but sat huddled together, with the driving rug almost up to his chin, an eccentric figure of a man. I foresaw another such sight as the last, and I confess my heart sank. I had no stomach for more mysteries, and somehow with the approach of twilight, the confidence of the day departed. The thing appeared in darker colours, and I found it in my mind to turn coward. Sybil alone deterred me. I could not bear to think of her alone with this demented being. I remembered her shy timidity, her innocence. It was monstrous that the poor thing should be called on thus to fight alone with phantoms. When we came to the house, it was almost sunset. Ladlaw got out very carefully on the right side, and for a second stood by the horse. The sun was making our shadows long, and as I stood between him, it seemed for a moment that his shadow was double. It may have been mere fancy, for I had not time to look twice. He was standing, as I have said, with his left side next the horse. Suddenly the harmless elderly cob fell into a very panic of fright, rearing upward, and all but succeeded in killing its master. I was in time to pluck Ladlaw from under its feet, but the beast had become perfectly unmanageable, and we left a groom struggling to quiet it. In the hall, the butler gave me a telegram. It was from my clerk, summoning me back at once to an important consultation. Here was a prompt removal of my scruples. There could be no question of my remaining, for the case was one of the first importance, which I had feared might break off my holiday. The consultation fell in vacation time to the mere convenience of certain people who were going abroad, and there was the most instant demand for my presence. I must go, and at once, and, as I hunted in the timetable, I found that in three hours' time a night train for the south would pass Boromir, 
which might be stopped by special wire. But I had no pleasure in my freedom. I was in despair about Sybil, and I hated myself for my cowardly relief. The dreary dining room, the sinister bust, and Ladlaw crouching and quivering. The recollection, now that escape was before me, came back on my mind with the terror of a nightmare. My first thought was to persuade the Ladlaws to come away with me. I found them both in the drawing room, Sybil, very fragile and pale, and her husband sitting, as usual, like a frightened child in the shadow of her skirts. A sight of him was enough to dispel my hope. The man was fatally ill, mentally, bodily. And who was I to attempt to minister to a mind diseased? But Sybil, she might be saved from the martyrdom. The servants would take care of him, and, if need be, a doctor might be got from Edinburgh to live in the house. So while he sat with vacant eyes staring into the twilight, I tried to persuade Sybil to think of herself. I am frankly a sun worshipper. I have no taste for arduous duty, and the chaotic is my abhorrence. I laboured to bring my cousin to this frame of mind. I told her that her first duty was to herself, and that this vigil of hers was beyond human endurance. But she had no ears for my arguments. While Bob is ill, I must stay with him, she said always in answer, and then she thanked me for my visit, till I felt a brute and a coward. I strove to quiet my conscience, but it told me always that I was fleeing from my duty. And then, when I was on the brink of a nobler resolution, a sudden overmastering terror would take hold of me, and I would listen hysterically for the sound of the dog cart on the gravel. At last it came and in a sort of fever I tried to say the conventional farewells. I shook hands with Ladlaw, and when I dropped his hand it fell numbly on his knee. Then I took my leave, muttering hoarse nonsense about having a charming visit, and hoping to soon see them both in town. As I backed to the door, I knocked over a lamp on the small table. It crashed on the floor and went out, and at the sound Ladlaw gave a curious childish cry. I turned like a coward and ran across the hall to the front door and scrambled into the dog cart. The groom would have driven me sedately through the park, but I must have speed or go mad. I took the reins from him and put the horse into a canter. We swung through the gates and out into the moor road, for I could have no peace till the ghoulish elder world was exchanged for the homely ugliness of civilization. Once only I looked back, and there against the skyline, with a solitary window lit, the house of Moor stood lonely in the red desert. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Connor. We're going to talk about The Watcher by the Threshold by John Buchan 
first published in the Atlantic Monthly, December 1900. And uh, you read it for us, Connor. Thank you very much. No I problem. Had, I had some uh, issues with your some of your pronunciations, but it turns out I'm wrong. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was saying, he doesn't know how to pronounce distraught. It's a good thing I'm here to help him. Turns out distraught is a word. I didn't believe it. But it turns out, and it's really hard to find if you go Googling. It says, no, you mean distraught, <laughs> just like Jesse. Um, Google's trying to Jesse-splain you. Um, <laughs> no, that's a real word. It's slightly different than distraught. Distraught is like stressed out, whereas dis- distraught is like distracted. And there's a few other weird words in here. Um, how do you pronounce the thing that you have your fireplace on in your in your living room? See, I say I've said her, um, <laughs> but I've been corrected. I've been pulled up on that in my regular life. Oh, really? Because okay. it's yeah, oh, yeah. Because okay. um, it's hearth. Is yeah, that yeah. It's like the heart of the home is the hearth. Yeah, I um, hearth Yeah, I just never heard it pronounced, but I've read it a lot, and I read it as her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but uh, yeah. So um. I might have to, yeah, try and redo that a little bit. I don't, I don't, I, I, considering how many errors I was correcting that I was sending you the things on without it actually being cor- wrong, I'm like, I don't know if that one's really that important. Um, there's a lot, it's really hard to tell what's going on um, on a sub-level mm. reading this story the first time. I, I think yes. I read it four times. And I'm like, God damn, I should have started this earlier. I was like, ah, oh, this is easy. It's only an hour. But dude, this thing is fucking deep. Like, yeah, the reference level is so fucking deep. It's hard. It's, it's like, um, I'm, I think I'm pretty good when I'm reading Lovecraft. I'm like, I know that. I know that. I know that. He's operating on a different, different, uh, continent. <laughs> And he's operating in an earlier period, right? It's 20 years before Lovecraft gets his game going, right? Probably before Lovecraft was even even born. I think this was written. No, it, he was 1890. He would have been 10 years old when this came out, Lovecraft. Ah, okay. Right. And he doesn't mention this in Supernatural Horror and Literature, but it is very heavy Lovecraft-like. Um, and I believe... There's a story or a novel by August Derleth with almost the identical title that's just a, a based on Lovecraft's notes or something. Um, it's called The Watcher from the Threshold or something like that. I've not read it. Mm. But, uh, what was your first take on this, uh, Evan? Well, I had to read it twice um, to... to because I did, I did it the first time when I was I was on my bike. I thought, and in the first half is pretty, you know. I kind of I followed without trouble. Then it kind of, I wasn't sure what was quite going on, mm-hmm. so I came back. But I, but I was kind of prepared for the you know, the, the subtext a little bit more. The subtext is fucking so, deep on I, this, I, yo. I really enjoyed this story. Though. I thought it was really, really good. He's got all mm. sorts of stuff going on. Uh, how did you choose this one, Connor? Because I'm a Buckin fan, but I've not read every, not even close to everything he wrote. Well, um, so this, I'm very, the way I found this was, I'm very interested in folk horror. 
mm-hmm. as a genre, right? Yep. And um, when I was looking around, I was trying to find what's the earliest sort of examples of folk horror in the form that we would recognize it. Right. And one of the authors who came up with jo- was uh, John Bucket. Mm-hmm. And this is, I would say this is a weird tale. Yep. Um, and with some hints of folk horror in there as well. Yep. Uh, but I was really shocked that I'd never, people were saying, I saw commentary, oh, John Buchan's written a bunch of weird stories and some of them are known, but this is one that um, was uh, in collections of mm-hmm. his supernatural tales, um, but is not really known, which no. is a bit shocking because I think it's so good. And like, uh, it's hard um, though. It's hard. The the reason yeah. there's nothing happens in the story. A guy goes and visits some guy's house. They have like coffee. They go. Out, uh, they have a dinner. He looks at his library. They go to a. They don't go out shooting. They they go to a restaurant in a small town nearby. He goes back mm. to their house. He gets a email or something from his his uh, law student. <laughs> Whatever you have to come back, and he goes back, and that's the whole. That's the whole plot. I think. I think this makes this actually better than a lot of Lovecraft stories because it is like on the surface kind of banal, mm-hmm. but there's really something pretty creepy going on. That's also something that we can experience in life, right? Yes, like a friend kind of going around the bend. Yep. Yeah, and then trying to understand what that is. But there was just that that moment when they're on that ride together, right? Yep. And you're like, this is uh, my friend, and this is. And they have the evening in the in the library where he he goes. But Whack. that's just him. That that could be a, just a crazy friend, right? Yep. Your friend goes crazy in that conversation. He suddenly gets obsessed with history and Roman law. Yeah, and that's all this weird stuff. Um, fine, whatever, you know. Find the doctor, right? Help my help my cousin. But it's that it's that one moment. It's just it's just a few paragraphs, right, Connor? On the yeah. I, it's, it's the last because I had to go back and listen to the last ten minutes because of the, the it was cut on the original version. Yeah, we were missing the last couple yeah. of paragraphs, but so I, I listened to the last ten minutes and it was like all this happens in in very very end of the story. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of there's a couple of scenes we should read out. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of scenes, uh, dude. It's way deeper than the, I uh, than what I thought, and I'm like. Okay, maybe I'm hallucinating a little bit here, because he's a good writer, but there's... I've read this story before in a much clearer, simpler, um, more movie-like version. Did you get a chance to hear it, Connor? It's called The Grove of Ashtra. Oh, um, yes, yes. I listened to uh, the audiobook that... um, Mr. Jim Moon put out. Yeah, exactly. And then I listened to your podcast. Um, I thought that was pretty fascinating. It's really interesting, and it's the same setup. Um, there's no girl, mm. um, so it's uh, it's set in um, Africa, though. It's set uh, in probably Rhodesia, um, and uh, instead of it being uh, Roman um, folk horror or you know Scottish folk horror, it's um, Semitic. Um, mm. and, uh, there's dino, I mean, there's, there's a dynamite ending, they shotgun everything, um, there's a, there's the library scene, um, but it's about a guy going to, vi- it's basically John Bucken going to visit a friend who's gone round the bend, and, mm. uh, 
the first time I read this, I was like, uh, okay, I'm not sure what, I, I thought, I thought it was, since it was on the cover, I thought this was going to be about a descent into a cave, you know? <laughs> There's a version from a, a book comp, a book company that's now defunct, it seems, called, uh, Ash Tree Press in British Columbia that has The Watcher by the Threshold. Um, and it has a guy in a, in a fedora walking into a cave and there's like these, these lurkers, uh, with spear pit points or something near the cave entrance. That's not in this story. Exactly. That's from another one of Buchan's, uh, weird tales called, um, No Man's Land. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's what that picture is from. Mm. I recognized it immediately, but uh-huh. it's not from this story, but they're often collected together. Yes. So I expect that's a collection. Absolutely. Um, How to, uh, if you picture what's going, like, if you take the best scenes out of this and you were making a comic book, there's a, a couple of guys riding on a dog cart, which is just a two wheeled ca- carriage, right? Um, mm. <laughs> and a lady at the door, um, who says, don't look at the, the sculpture over there. Oh, like cutting her throat whenever he looks over at it. Um, there's like no, there's no action, uh, pack things going on. One thing I did notice though is the narrator is a bit odd. Um, you guys know what I mean when I'm saying he's a bit odd? Like, what do no. you, what do you take? What, what, what's your, he's a lawyer, right? Um, he's on vacation. He has, come from norway um and he gets this letter from his cousin i'm I'm doing a story cap which i never do he gets a letter from his cousin and he was in love with his cousin many times he says um his cousin married a schoolmate. i don't know if that means they were in the same class and they were buddy buddy but he seems to have known him well enough and he'd been to this place before probably you know when they got married or some other visit um but our narrator is not really interested in the story as much as he's interested in his cousin. And so there's like a weird thing, like he's kind of dumb, uh, but yeah. he's really good at dropping all the hints that <laughs> John Bucken needs to do. And he's telling us this story and it's not clear in the narration. So I should just mention it at the beginning. When you read, uh, the opening, it says a chill evening in the early October of the year 1890. And it doesn't say what the finished year. This is a very common thing to do in the 19th century. 1890 blank, right? So it's not 1890. It's 1890 something. Why is he hiding that from us? Well, that's a traditional way of telling us that this is a true story, right? And John Buchan's telling us this. That makes us think that John Buchan is the author. And then with a footnote um, saying that he later identified this this statue or bust, that's, again, telling us that this is John Buchan. But it's a true story. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's not playing himself exactly because he's obviously smarter than his character. But he's also pretty lustful after uh, a cousin. Um, uh, maybe lustful is not the right word for it. But he his motivations seem to be like, I, I can stick around here. I can take her away from here. We can be together and dump this guy. I didn't quite get the that uh He calls feeling. it duty, right? He says yeah. it's duty. I, I saw it as a familial sort of duty. Like he, he's he got to help out his cousin because she's really asking for his help. 
but I didn't necessarily get the sense that he was hoping to uh, pair up with her after she's left her husband or anything like that. He says uh, it's he to that way. I think it's a it's a it's a former love, right? And yeah. Because at one point he even says like she was better off to marry him. It was a good marriage. Yep. Yep. It was the right marriage for her. Yep. She's I, smarter I mean, than me, he I, says. I got, a, I got out of it that he was in love with her. Yeah. And they had a relationship before. Yep. And and he's mm. he's torn because he 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 doesn't actually like this guy that much, but he's friendly to him and he's there to service her needs, not his. Right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's kind of a sad relationship. But what's funny is they're tied up together in a way that he isn't tied with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not just to say, you know, they're husband and wife, but there's there's actually some sort of uh, underlying thing going on. And uh, I'm pretty sure I know where he stole this from. <laughs> so when I'm when I talk about the Grove of Ashtroth, that came out in 1910. He's ripping off this and making it, you know, he's retelling the same story, but making it more interesting with, you know, explosions like and. And, uh, you know, a goddess and there's stuff going on in here, but it's very underdeveloped for a modern audience. It's very hard to sell this as a, like a, a rip roaring story. And yet, uh, a lot's going on. So do you guys notice that this is the exact same premise as the fall of the house of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe? Oh, I didn't, but I did notice like some similarities to other stories but you're definitely right it's very similar to it is um the house of usher and he goes there for the almost identical reasons in the fall of the house of usher it's um in this uh, mid-atlantic region you know poe had visited scotland as a youth (laughs) i doubt that um that uh you know buchan oh no buchan wasn't alive then but i'm sure buchan has read poe and this must have got into his head because it's a great setup. And even if it's a, mm-hmm. if it's not identical, um, there's a lot going on. Um, but what's going on with Poe is like, I think that, and it made me think of what, what's actually going on here the first time is what kind of disease does this guy have? It's a venereal disease, right? In this story? Yeah. I mean, it's not really, but, but that's like, he, it's an untreatable disease. It makes you go crazy, right? Well, that's what he might be thinking. Yeah. That's an area I might be thinking. Yes. He doesn't say it, right? But he keeps saying, you know, and, you know, when he says doctors, well, that's because they can't, there's no treatment, successful treatment, especially in the 1890s for venereal diseases. Uh, oh, I'm thinking of a very specific yeah. one, the Montpassant disease, right? <laughs> the French disease. Um, I was about to bring this up. I didn't pick up on that when I initially read it, but I did pick up on similarities between uh, Guy de Montpassant and some of his stories and this story, especially the paranoia mm-hmm. around there's someone or something invisible or following me yeah. and taking control of me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Horlocks, etc. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Guy de Maupassant had syphilis. Yep. And that was likely where that idea came from for him. And so. Yeah, literally he, happening to uh, him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um. So, what does yeah. the cousin say? She says it's a, a disease of the heart. 
Something mm. about his heart. Yeah, it's all heart, 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 and his left yeah. side, right? And so it, it, it's not really a venereal disease. If we read it carefully, I mean, it's something else because there's so much placed on his, uh, the, the cousin-in-law's um, <laughs> own researches, how he's changed since since last our narrator was there. Our narrator focuses. On, he's uh, this is why I'm saying he's dumb. He he's always talking about woodcocks, <laughs> yeah. right? What does he like he to do? Likes to he likes hunting, score. shooting, right? Yeah. And he says at least we can go for a hill climb, and it's like no, I can't walk. Okay, uh, and the other guy suggests at billiards, and it's like on a nice day like this, like he's dumb, right? He's dumb. He describes he describes himself as a, a sun worshiper, which yep. I thought was a great description of just like he doesn't he doesn't like anything too difficult. He doesn't like to. He also says at the start. I thought this was a great kind of setup. Was he doesn't like the more because it's so indistinct and has yep. this vague mystery about it. Yep. And so his he his doesn't like weird tales. Is, <laughs> yeah. He's not a weird fiction fan, <laughs> yet he's telling us a story of one, right? Which is, is kind of, when he talks about, um, his trip to Nor- Norway. Basically, just. Oh. Right. We lost, Ladlaw. I lost. That's right. Yeah. Sorry, I missed, I missed um, some of that. What did you say about Ladlaw? That's oh, just... Yeah, Ladlaw. That's right. I was, so, um... was going to mention, like, what he says about his trip to Norway. Right before he came to Scotland, he was in Norway for the hunting, right? And he says of that trip, it was quote unquote disastrous. Like, what, like you shoot your buddy in the face? Or like, what was it? <laughs> no, he doesn't say, but it basically yeah. he's saying, I haven't got any sport this year. This is terrible. Do, this is my vacation. Have um, explained, or no. is it just like he didn't have very good uh, sport in Norway? He didn't have good sport, and he he when like he was thinking, oh, when I visit my cousin, we can do. It's not explained. Yeah, no, no, it's Um, never explained. The shooting had been extraordinary. Well, he's kind of grumpy the whole time too. Yes, like his vacation's not going well, and then he gets called over to deal with this thing, and it's just this weirdo. So, and then he's like really eager to get back once he gets called back. Yeah. Well, that was the most, I think, realistic thing about this story was um, the way that he just, uh, at the end, he's like, he's like, well, this is just too weird for me. I just can't deal with it. How do I handle this situation? I can't solve it. I can try and get my cousin to leave. But apart from that, there's nothing I can do. And uh, it's just way too uncomfortable. So I'm out of here. Let me, let me read a little bit from, um, this is starting on the... F- first page going into the second page of the pdf i made um this is down bottom right hand column right near the end compared with the fresh highland glen i had left where the wind and the sun and flying showers were never absent all was chilly and dull and dead even when the sun sent a a shiver of crimson over the crests of certain firs i felt no delight in the prospect i admitted shamefacedly to myself that i was in a very bad temper and then this is kind of interesting, just for later uh, paying attention to um, other John Bucken works. I had been staying at Glenis- Glenisil with the Clanroydens, 
and for a week had found the proper pleasure in life. You know, the house, with its old rooms and gardens and miles of heather which defend it from the world. I do? <laughs> I don't know this house. Who is he talking about, right? Who is he talking mm. to? So that's one of the things that's funny, is he's telling us the story. But he doesn't even make it a question. He, it's just, you know the house. And, and it defendeth from the world. The shooting had been extraordinary for a wild place late in the season, for there are few, there are few partridges and the woodcock are notoriously late. I had done respectably in my stocking, more than respectably on the river, and credit, creditably on the moors. So what's he do? He goes out and he hunts and he fishes, and he walks and he hunts and he fishes. Moreover, there was pleasant people in the house, and there were the Clanroydens. I had had a hard year's work sustained to the last moment of the term, and a fortnight in Norway had been disastrous. What the fuck is he talking about? It was therefore with real comfort that I had settled myself down for another ten days at Glenisil, when all my plans were shattered by Sybil's letter. <laughs> like, he's overly dramatic, right? He, he's, he's only, he knows himself... But he's kind of dumb. <laughs> just like dumb about everything. Just like shooting. And, and meanwhile, it's all about him, 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 right? When we finally get to the letter, um, it starts off very formally. And then there's a PS. And then there's another PS. Like, she's writing it on the same day, right? And so it ends... Um, I'm just skipping over to the next column here. Then she had signed herself my affectionate cousin. And then had come a short violet postscript violent postscript in which as it were the fences of conventionality had been laid low get it laid law laid mm. low for heaven's sake come and see us she scrawled below bob is terribly ill and i am crazy come at once to cap it she finished with an afterthought so that's a ps and another ps right don't bother about bringing doctors it isn't their it is not their business um so I'm like, okay, this sounds like Fall of Usher to me. And then when we see his various states of, you know, what's wrong with him, which is exactly what's going on in Fall of House of Usher, um, there everybody's dying in that house, right? Here, um, he's dying, and then she doesn't get up the next day after a big meal, right? And he's healthy as a horse. It's like she has the same infection. And that, so I'm thinking this is like, um, this is like syphilis symptoms setting in later for her because he gave it to her. But that's not exactly what's going on because there's a whole other level to, you know, his research is playing a role in here. And so it is, it's tough compared to, I think, you know, the Grove of Ashroth, which is, you know, action packed explosions and sneaking out in the night and, you know, shotgunning uh goddess <laughs> it's crazy yeah right and also like uh i mean the grove of ashtroth to me is just uh 100 supernatural that's yeah. the explanation yep um uh whereas this one i don't know i interpreted i interpreted it, it as a supernatural story um mm -hmm. and almost like a possession story but your interpretation is is uh, I think probably probably more accurate. It's both. Right? It's both though because mm, there is a there is exactly. A, so um, I sent you a couple pictures by direct message. I don't think I sent them to Evan, um, but if you type into Google or Wikipedia, 
Guardian of the Threshold. Um, so I, I, I stumbled over this. Because I've seen, like, stories similar to this. There's um, a Barry Payne one that's set at a university, and um, somebody dies of smoke inhalation, but also sees, like, like uh, his own death or something. There, let's see, what picture is this? So, yeah. So this picture here is in the Wikipedia entry for Guardian of the Threshold. Uh, it's a... a R. Mackell. I've never heard of this painter before, but it's a very interesting painting, right? Um, you see, uh, it's hard to see in the the versions we've got because it's all paywalled and stuff, but I, I dug this out. There's a woman there to the right of a man who's dying or something. On his head are laurels. It's kind of hard to see. Um, in the background, there's a giant ghosty-looking death figure and then behind the death figure is some sort of light figure right and one of them has a halo and the other is like so there's something going on here um and this is all to do with madame blavatsky and uh that weird religion they kind of invented for themselves what's it called spiritualism yeah uh what's but there's a more specific theosophy golden Ah, yeah Right? Mackel, this painter, I just looked him up. He's, yeah. uh, he's, he's a theosophist. Indeed. Um, and this painting... I was thinking it kind of looked like the symbolists. It is a symbolist painting, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and this, is, this scene is almost perfectly described in a couple of parts of the book, of the story, where he's talking about his side, you know, like his left side. It's always his left side. And our narrator, I think, is kind of dumb, again. Um, he's thinking of it like when the guy says it's the devil, <laughs> mm. it turns out it's the devil. Um, I think that that's correct. Um, but it's also incorrect because it, you know, devil's not real in this universe. I don't think, uh, 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 the universe of the story exactly, but it's also all about Justinian having made a deal with the devil and brought us law, Right. And what's this guy's name? Ladlaw? <laughs> uh, or Laidlaw? Mm. And then what's his his uh, wife's name is Sybil, which is, again, you know, ancient Greek shit. Theodora, theosophical. Like, he's read some of this theosophical shit, and he just said, I can use this, right? And we don't see that because we're not deep in hip, hip deep in theos- theosophy. But they were at this period in 1900. That was top shit, right? Everybody knew about this stuff. It was like, uh, I don't know, more, not stronger than Mormons. It's like Scientology or something way more hip than Scientology. Falun Gong? <laughs> I don't know. Some sort of I don't like. Know. It's, it's, it's like one of those things you can graft on to your established beliefs. Like you can still go to your like congregationalist church. Yeah, yeah. Big the theosophy on the side, know. yeah, because it's it's the spiritual part of the religion that's yeah. all very formal, right? So um, I'm pretty sure that this is what he why the story is so weird is because he's he's operating with a bunch of technical things that are um, operating in the background that we are not noticing because we we're not hip deep in this stuff, so. Um, 
It's like, why is Lovecraft so racist? <laughs> well, you know, back in the time he was writing, everybody was so fucking racist. Uh, no, mm. not everybody. When we say everybody, not everybody was into theosophy, okay? Some people were atheists back then. But uh, a lot more people were religious, and a lot more people were paying attention to that stuff. So that's part of the reason this story is kind of weird to us, right? Is that this is not ancient biblical stuff that, that you know, cycles through Adam and Eve and everybody still sort of knows about, even if they don't go to Sunday school. Um, but this is uh, also very specifically about Justinian, who is like a big figure if you go to, uh, you know, law school for a minute, right? It's mentioned that our narrator knows about it. Another, and I, I, I know I'm all over the place here, but there's a lot yeah, going on. Yeah, he doesn't on. read that much. That, that, that's another sign that he's not that smart. And, and also, he doesn't... He's a lawyer who kind of, oh, I came across this school. Yeah, and he also says, I'm not going to tell you this story as he said it. Right? <laughs> I'm going to just tell it my own way. Um, which is a way to go. But that's not the traditional way to go. The traditional way to go is to set it down exactly as it was said. Right? Um, mm. So why does he do it that way? Again, because our narrator is dumber than the audience. It's dumber than John Buchan. He's more simple, and he's not seeing everything going on. But John Buchan's laying it down so heavy that once I started looking, I'm like, oh, it's everywhere. Like, there's a line about what he calls... Okay, this is on page 802, second column. Listen to this. Um uh, well, I'll start at the bottom of the other page. Here we were, three fools alone in the, in the dank upland. One of us sick and nervous, talking out of the way nonsense about Manon and Justinian, gobbling his food and getting scared at his napkin. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Another gravely anxious, and myself at my wit's end for a solution. That's because he's kind of dumb. He doesn't know how to solve this, right? And then it continues. It was a mad tea party with a vengeance. Sybil, the melancholy little dormouse, and Laidlaw, Ladlaw, the incomprehensible hatter. So his references are to Alice in Wonderland, right? Which would have been fairly contemporary for this story. But our attention should be on what he calls her. A dormouse. Theodora. And... Mm. And what's a dormouse? It's a watcher by the threshold, right? Like, who is the watcher by the threshold of the title? Well, it could be our narrator, right? It could be Theodora, uh, sorry, uh, Sybil, <laughs> watching her husband at the threshold of death, right? Um, or it could be death uh, waiting. Uh, like, it, it, he's doing a lot of work to make this story, like, deep in a way that's pretty funny considering, you know, like, it's very atmospheric and moody, but the guy's like, I don't like this stuff. <laughs> he isn't like yeah. a Lovecraft character is like, oh, it was, it was gruesome and spooky and I couldn't help myself, but I had to go in that scary house. <laughs> this is more like, I didn't really want to go and they don't have any ducks for me to shoot, so... But I love that girl. <laughs> so, like, him, go for it. Well, I have a question for you guys. Like, like Lovecraft kind of wrote a bunch of stories that this reminds us mm -hmm. of. These these mind swap stories, right? Yep. You got the temple, 
the, the tomb, sorry, the tomb. Mm-hmm. You got the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And actually, like in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, it's it's the incapacity of this ancient character to to basically survive in the modern world mm-hmm. that kind of exposes him. And here, it's a similar thing, right? Like he knew like these details about ancient, yeah, wall, like defensive structures, but he didn't know like basic science. Um, so that kind of exposed him. But at first, I thought, oh, so we got like a like a, like a something like a Yithian or something, right? Yes, yes, taken over. But if you take the Theosophy angle, then it's a it's a metempsychosis kind of thing or reincarnation so mm-hmm. there's a past life coming mm-hmm. up so i guess i was wondering what you guys i mean i'm not really sure but I, I'm, I'm wondering if this is the past life that's been exposed by this illness so uh, he, so much so much time is spent him in our narrator discussing what he's been doing right and so when he says i i've been in this library before he doesn't say that but it's inferred right um and it used to be filled with books full of badminton, close at hand. <laughs> like, so let's read books That's about badminton, read, right? right? Like that's that's what he's excited about, and having rifles there, right? And now it was all neat and scholarly. <sighs> I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> so he's he's like a he's a really bad narrator for this story because he's he's dim, right? When it comes to paying attention to the details, he. He cares about horses and, and, uh, you know, shooting. <laughs> and he likes that girl. But that's it, right? He doesn't, you know, pool, that's not enough shooting. I want to go outside. I want to hunt some shit. Um, so when we get all this stuff about how much time this guy spent doing basically Lovecraftian research and all, all this bo- stuff about, um, Justinian and, um, the secret history of Justinian. These are all real books. So this is like the traditional Lovecraftian, you know, or if you're playing Call of Cthulhu, it's the library science check, check roll against library science, right? <laughs> he, he, he rolled really well. He found a guy who was a lot like him or so he thought in Justinian, right? There's a guy who's similar to him somehow. And, um, he's made a deal with the devil somehow but yeah it could be uh reincarnation or it could uh, but i think I, I think it probably is but we're reading it as a uh, the thing on the doorstep style story or the alka not the alchemist but um yeah like the tomb or or the yithians from uh, whatever that story is called uh shadow of time shadow out of time right uh so We've got a character who, who's so powerful in their ability to stay alive. They they can inhabit the body, but then there's there's uh, the relationship between between Scotland and uh, you know Justinian, who's very far away from Scotland, is kind of stretched. Um. So I'm not but all these Europeans have this connection to Justinian because it's like law, right? Law yes, is yes. What the, the Roman inheritance is Christianity and law. Yes, Christian it's Christianity like and Western law. Western That's what you learn. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking this could be like making fun of of theosophy in a certain way, but maybe it's a bit muddled. I'm not sure. What What do you think, Connor? Um, 
Not sure. I don't know enough about theosophy, I think, to um, have a good theory about that. Um, on like my level of how I was looking at this story, I was looking at it as... Um, uh, let me see. Hmm. Well, let me let me read from this is the Guardian of Threshold Wikipedia entry. Um, according to Theosophy, this paragraph, the dweller of the threshold or the guardian of the threshold as a literary invention of the English mystic and novelist, here he comes, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, is found in his romance Zanoni, 1842. So this is a contemporary of, of a Poe. After the founding of the Theosophical Society in 1875, the term gave wide currents term gained wide currency in theosophical circles. The guardian of the threshold is a spectral figure and is the abstract of the debit and credit book of the individual. Quote, it is the combined evil influence that is the result of the wicked thoughts and acts of the age in which anyone may live, and it assumes to each student a definite shape at each appearance, being always either one sort or changing each time. Uh, quote, the dweller of the threshold meets us in many shapes. It is the Cerberus guarding the entrance to Hades, the dragon which St. Michael's spiritual willpower is going to kill, the snake which tempted Eve, and whose head will be crushed by the heel of the woman, the hobgoblin watching the place where the treasure is buried, etc. He is the king of evil who will not permit that within its kingdom, uh, that within its kingdom a child should grow up which might surpass him in power, the Herod before whose wrath the divine child Christ has to flee into a foreign country and is not permitted to return to his home, the soul, until the king, amb the king ambition, pride, vanity, self-righteousness, etc., is dethroned or dead. According to Max Heindel, the dweller of the threshold must be confronted by every aspirant, usually at an early stage of his progress into the unseen worlds, and is one of the main causes of obsession. So this is really lame spirituality. <laughs> Very simplistic. But notice it covers everything, right? It's like, well, you know, you're at the the situation of you, you were doing some bad, and that's why you're being punished, right? So if he did cheat on his wife, our uh, Ladlaw, um, who's like Justinian, both good and bad. Justinian has, uh, he's a saint, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Justinian's a saint. Mm. And guess what? Theodora's a saint, too. Um, but the guys who wrote about how great these people were, both of these people, also wrote stuff about how they're really rotten. <laughs> and, you know, Theodora, um, you know, saved the empire or whatever. Uh, meanwhile, she's also, uh, like, evil. Um, and she's a whore, and she's a, uh, you know, uh, an actress. Oh, my God. And Justinian, um, who, you know, he brought Christianity and law into our world. He's also like, you know, an egoist. And so if our guy, who we're not seeing very well, Ladlaw, through the eyes of our narrator, is is a bad person. He cheated on his wife. Or more importantly, the, the thing I'm, I'm thinking a lot about lately is uh, how much labor is involved in keeping this estate up. <laughs> I, was, mm. I was mowing grass today by hand. You know, no 
they're not allowed, you're not allowed to use gas mowers right now because of risk of fire. So I'm mowing by hand. That's a lot of work. Um, those, uh, hills of Scotland used to be covered in trees. They cut them all down. Then they shipped off all the people who lived there. And the only people left are the lords who got rich from the cutting down of the trees and the, and the sheep that they made those enclosures for. And a few poor people who have to do what the Lord says. And there are very few of them in this story, but they're everywhere, right? The uh, town they go to visit, um, it's full of poor people, noisy, he says. Um, he sees a groom and uh, early in the story, and that doesn't bother him too much because the guy knows how to keep a horse. Um, there's the train he has to go to. We hear about his employee who has to call him back. And more importantly... He has to be called back, we're told at the end, because they want to go on vacation. So class is in here, and there's a class criticism. And I'm thinking that the narrator, the John Buchan figure, is unaware of class in the same way that our uh, Ladlaw is. What's his first name? I can't remember. Anyway. It's Robin. Well, Robert, Bob. Robert, right? And then it becomes Robin. That's right. right. Um, mm. uh, he, he seems to have like sp- stepped outside of the role of being just a, a lord of the manor hunting and fishing, right? He's, he's probably due to whatever injury he has, which is on his left side, his sinister side. Um, he's become more bookish. And he's studying this figure. And we're told um, Justinian's uh, bust was very expensive. I think I think that it's actually not very expensive. It's something like uh, an outrage. Outrageous is not. There's a special word that means both good and bad. <laughs> like whatever he paid for it was way too much, but it was also an awesome price, right? Mm. And I was thinking that maybe that was what caused his <laughs> the spirit of Justinian was inside the the statue the bust <laughs> yeah the bust i'm like that's stupid well. right but he sent away for it and we get that uh footnote about <clears throat> i will uh, read that footnote now if you like um this is on bottom of page 801 or um it says 50051 uh, at the bottom um footnote 1 and it's uh on the line why on earth I should connect to that to the Roman grandee with the Moorland parish of Moor, and that's the name of the estate, right? I cannot say, but the fact remains that there was that in the face which I knew had haunted me through the woodlands and bogs of the place, a sleepless, dismal, incoherent melancholy. He has trouble sleeping, he says. So when he talks about this Roman grandee, he says, uh, footnote one, I have identified the bust, which, when seen under other circumstances, had little power to affect me. It was a copy of the head of Justinian in the Teschi Museum at Venice, and several duplicates exist, dating apparently from the 7th century and showing traces of Byzantine decadence in the scrollwork on the hair. It is engraved engraved in M. Delacroix's Byzantium, and I think in Winshine's Pandekertel... Whoosh, whoosh. So he's talking, he, he thinks this is important that we know this. I think he doesn't think it's important, except uh, John Bucket needs to put it in there to make it more like that intertextuality Lovecraftian in you know, a research. This is all real. 
stuff, the lack of the specific date, all that stuff is there um, to make it feel like a more real document. But I don't think the theory that he's <laughs> he's inside the bust and then he gets inside of like like uh, this is the Horla theory, right? He's waving at the ship in coming into the river uh, on his way to Paris and the Horla from Brazil takes that as an invitation to invade his body. He is both mm. suffering from uh, the disease that shall not be named and that doctors can't cure and that he's infected his wife with and that's why they can't talk about it, right? And he's also infected with the same disease that Justinian had, um, which is uh, he wants uh, Justinian's famous for today for us for being uh, the father of modern uh, law in a certain sense, but he's also he had this policy um, he was going to retake the empire, right? He's going to make the empire back to its original borders, which guess what includes right up to Scotland. So, but not it, including Scotland. Not right? including like, Scotland, though, right? Yeah, uh, the, like the, you cannot. You, yeah, the, the, the like an Englishman with this obsession with Justinian. It's a little more explicable because they have that connection. Like Lovecraft is the same way. Right? Yep, because yep. He loved England. It's a lot like uh, the rats in the walls. Loved Roman, like eighteenth century England and Rome were his periods, right? Mm -hmm. That he kept going back to. But for Scott, you, you know, but this guy, this this fucking he. If you look at the other stuff he wrote, he really was an imperialist. He really was saw himself as part of the British Empire. He was the Governor General of Canada. Yeah, and he spent time in South Africa. He wrote a bunch of stuff on that. I think he was born he in South Africa. A whole bunch yeah. about World War One. Uh, oh yeah, you know, one of his most famous novels was it the thirty thirty nine steps? steps? Yep, yeah, it's a spy novel written during the war. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's he's hundred percent down with imperialism, but he has this this uh, sort of niggling feeling in the back of his mind. Like if you read the end of, it's so explicit in in the Grove of Ashtaroth. At the end, he's like, "I'm going to dynamite this last temple to Ashtaroth. I'm going to do it." Mm -hmm. And he hires a bunch of people, and then he sets about doing it, and he keeps having these reservations. But sort of his position as the hiree makes and you know sort of being the lord of the of this particular operation keeps him on the path of being responsible for this extinction of a goddess right and her grove and there's like it, it's all sorts of weird stuff like Junus uh of his friends um is part of the reason he's affected whereas this scotch uh anglo guy is not affected but they were friends at school right so there's something, there's some sort of fascinating connection between, you know, the, uh, both, one of the words that comes in both stories is going to seed, right? This is something that <laughs> apparently all the uh, Victorian era lords were, were notorious for doing, right? They come into their flower and then they go to seed. <laughs> and if, if you say something is seedy, what you mean is disreputable, right? Mm. And so... This guy's done exactly that. He's gone to seed. Um, it, it, it feels very much like a Lovecraft story without the, um, you know, because Lovecraft wouldn't make the character this dumb. <laughs> and he also wouldn't make the character interested in the girl, 
that's just like an you know it it's it's um it's why Poe and Lovecraft are so different is Poe's obsessed with the women. I think Buchan's like, yeah, women are great. <laughs> Whereas Lovecraft's like, well, they, they do exist in our world, but do we need to talk about them? There are bigger issues. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure what it's supposed to be or if it's supposed to be super clear. I, I don't think it is supposed to be super clear. The but, role of Justinian, right? Yeah. Cause the, the, I think... Go for it. I got... So I don't think that because he already Ladlaw already has whatever this problem is or this um, whatever it is that is uh, possessing him or infecting him is already there. He it's uh, but he learns about you know the secret history of Justinian and then he's like oh this is like me and it says he almost becomes proud of it. Um, but uh, and that's why he gets the bust um, and is so obsessed with it. To try and sort of, uh, he's a Lovecraftian character. Yeah. Um, but I, like, my first interpretation was basically that whatever, like, uh, probably the most basic interpretation is that the watcher on the threshold is whatever this sort of spirit is, mm. um, that is possessing him was also the same spirit or demon that was possessing Justinian. Interesting, um, yeah. And that, and that's the connection is that he recognized the, his own symptoms, which, um, uh, like, uh, I don't know whether either of you read the, um, passage in the secret history from, uh, Pro, Procropius. Yeah. He's mentioned uh, in this. I have not read it, but I did read the Wikipedia entry, uh, on yeah. Justinian that talks about it. It's it's uh it's not particularly enlightening, but basically it just says that um in the uh I think Procopius was the historian in Justinian's sort of court and he wrote you know, this scandalous hit secret history about what Justinian was really like and in it he says that uh they thought he was people had seen him being possessed by a demon hmm. or uh, you know, a demon in the shadows right. um around him. So that seems to be where that's what um, Bakken is trying to sort of uh, yes. He's recall. he's basing it on that, right? He's yeah. He's he's and saying this is an echo of that, and that sort of leads yeah. us like it's it's almost like the uh, the theosophists were right, and here's that evidence of that, right? Mm. And that's why I, we uh, have that textual verification of you know the footnote and the you know about that estate, et cetera. Yeah, um, yes, uh, there's one line, uh, which is, I think, uh, he says, the nar narrator says, an amorphous shadow would run from his left side into mm. the darkness, mm -hmm. um, which I was sort of like the, w the threshold that I was thinking of was this sort of, uh, divide between the spiritual world or some sort of a beyond where these spirits or demons exist and the modern world or the reality. Um, and that's what's happened to Ladlaw is like something's almost attached to him through that divide and whatever it is can't quite get through. Right. But it's there on the threshold sort of watching and trying to influence him. And, um, and when it's like, when, Early in the morning, Ladlaw seems to be okay, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he sort of has like almost, I think, what's called like sundown 
syndrome. Yep. It's like after dark, he starts to um, uh, lose it a little bit. And that's when there's the shadows and the darkness. And that's when whatever it is, this supernatural force holds more sway and can influence him more. Um, so, and I think like what, uh, I guess is, you know, it's implying that whatever it is was the same thing that was maybe happening to Justinian. If we take that as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Justinian being possessed. Yep. Um, but what I was thinking yeah, of I, was, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I sort of, well, you had more to say, so I'll let you finish. Oh, well, um, I, kind of, I want to take it in a slightly different way with this same sure. interpretation of, like the importance of Justinian and law. Mm. But you can um, finish your thought. Well, I was just thinking uh, whether the spirit or the supernatural force is sort of like the spirit of the Moor or of the old Manan, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a Roman and, term for for the the area. Ah, yeah. I didn't... Yeah. I, yeah, it's um, hard to find... Almost everything that you search on this stuff comes up as this story, but yeah, yeah. It, 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 it there's um it's the area uh, the Roman term for the borderland. Ah, okay. And let me read that section yeah. here. I've got I've got it on page uh, eight hundred one. In a few minutes, he seemed to. Uh, this is on the same page as the footnotes. In a few minutes, he seemed to have forgotten his behavior, for he took up the former conversation. For a time, he spoke well and briskly. You lawyers, he said, understand only the dry framework of the past. You cannot conceive the rapture which only the antiquary can feel of constructing in every detail an old culture. It sounds like Lovecraft talking, right? Take this, Manan. If I could explore the secret of these moors, I could write the world's greatest book. I would write of the that prehistoric life when man was knit close to nature. So this isn't like, go shoot everything. This is more like I understand the real landscape. I would describe the people who were brothers of the red earth and the red rock. And by the way, this comes through at the end as well. Take note. Um, Of the red earth and the red rock and the red streams of the hills. Oh, it would be horrible, but superb. Tremendous. It would be more than a piece of history. It would be a new gospel, a new theory of life. It would kill materialism once and for all. Why, man, all the poets who have defied, uh, sorry, deified and personified nature would not do an eighth part of my work. I would show you the unknown, the hideous, shrieking mystery at the back of this simple nature. Men would see the profundity of the old crude face with which they affect to despise. I would make a picture of our shaggy, somber-eyed forefather who heard strange things in the hill silences. I would show him brutal and terror-stricken, but wise, wise. God alone knows how wise. The Romans knew it, and they learned what they could from him, though they did not tell him uh, them much. But we know some of the blood is in. We know some of his blood is, his blood in us, and we may go deeper. Menan, a queer land nowadays. I sometimes love it and sometimes hate it. But I always fear it. It is like the statue, that statue, inscrutable. Like that's very, very so th- Lovecraft. This, Jesse, this is really, you know, I think, an important part mm-hmm. uh, of this story um, because if you read this literally, 
kind of think of like the Howard Lovecraft debate about civilization yep. when you read this too, right? So if if we take him earnestly, then his obsession with Justinian, with law, I mean, what does law do to what he's describing? The brutal and terror-stricken landscape. Mm-hmm. The hideous it unknown. It. it tames it, right? Mm-hmm. So... Mm. I'm thinking back to, and I know it's our narrator bringing up Alice in Wonderland. It might just be because it's only read and yep. that's only new. But, I mean, the Greek theme in that book, seems to me anyways, is 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 like when you don't have like reason, it's... Madness. The Mad Hatter. It's madness, right? Everything, mm-hmm. nothing makes sense. And it's you can't function in that that place if you don't have the basic laws of like the enlightenment right and mm-hmm. the response to that is law and i you know kind of this whole period this when was this published 1890 and 1900 1900 so yeah lovecraft's 10 yep uh you're right um so 1900 it's set it's set in the 1890s I think, I think we don't know when you have that fond they say yep yep Kind of feel here, the yellow nineties, and the, the, like, the, like the world, something's not quite right. We're kind of at the edge. We're a precipice. Yep. you know, is it's, it going to be? The it's a gilded age, Christ or whatever. It's the end of the age, right? And that mm-hmm. that was the feeling at the time, right? And mm-hmm. you see it in philosophy. There's even in this passage you just read. There's like these hints of like this Nietzsche, right? Like, it's super deep. Uh, they, mm-hmm. I'm the last two bit. Like spirit and energy, but oh yeah, so th- that's that's where I'm I'm thinking the Justinian law is. It's, it's like Justinian is is like the idea of Justinian is is someone putting their finger in the dam that's leaking. Yep, you know, and law can make you save us right? and hiding the the you know getting that empire back right. So why is the land red? Why is it red, red, red? The rivers are running red. The land is running red. Well, what's missing is all the people, right? What, when, the, when the Scottish are resisting, the Picts, as they were called then, were resisting the Romans, not in Justinian's time, but before that, they just put up a wall and said, I guess we're not going in there, right? And they had the, you know, we have the kind of reconstruction of, of all sorts of cultures, based on what we think they were like, based on what the Romans said, right? So for the UK, it's all about Druids, <laughs> whatever they were, right? For Germany, it's like, they, that is their national spirit, right? Like what the Romans said about these weird tall guys with blonde hair um, had a great impact. It's all tacitus, right? Yeah, it's it's like this This is the same thing, that that river, the Rhine, was a line of demarcation. We don't cross in there because... We lose legions when we do. So these are the borders for now. And Scotland is is the border there. But Scotland is is part of empire. Buchan's a uh, a Scot who's part of the empire, right? He's off serving the empire. The borderline between Scotland and England here is, you know, just a, a an idea. There is no separation of currency. There's no sh- separation of, you know, nation. It's they're servants of empire. And so I think that there's underneath a lot of Buck and stuff is like 
this Empire shit is, like, really bad. <laughs> Even though I'm doing it all. I'm in favor of it all. It's also really bad. And so we've got the dumb guy who's, like, you know, living off of uh, rich people's um, inheritances. It, what he does is fi- fi- basically do their finances for them, right? He keeps the books on their their investments. That's the kind of lawyer he seems to be. Um just based on the fact of you well, know you, you being know called back. This guy's uh, Buckin's most famous biography, the one that, that got the most laurels, I guess, is about Montrose. No, I don't know. And so, if you read this, this is uh, this is from the Wikipedia about his book. Mm-hmm. Montrose is a detailed account of the life of James Brand, first Marquis of Montrose, who sought to combine adherence to Scotland's 1638 National Covenant with loyalty to Charles I. As Charles Lieutenant General in Scotland, Montrose was, argues Buckin, a skillful general during this, these campaigns, but only thwarted later. Um, but anyways, the point is he's he's a similar kind of guy to Buckin, right? Mm. He's a Scot who wants to be loyal to this empire. It's a very different context, of course. Yeah. In the 17th century, of course, because then the Scottish kings were ruling England, right? Yep. And, and actually, the Jacobites are mentioned in the book. In a yep, very they're mentioned way, in here. They? Yep, they're kind of put in a scornful way. Yep, well, it's because he's uh, our narrator is yeah. is is not he's not he's not it's not that he's unreliable. He's reliable as he needs to be. But there's all the all these touches that make me think, oh my god, he's putting he's like putting a spin on all these billiard moves to drop these things in the pockets. It it is a very much a like a. I was going to say pocket pool. That's not what it is. It's very much like a billiards game sort of story because he set up all these things. He's telling us what to expect. He's got all these things going on. But then we get that end where the red, right? The I'll just read that section again if I can find it. Um, what is it? The city, the, these lines are very Lovecraftian. I would show you the unknown, the hideous, shrieking mystery at the back of simple nature. Um, and I don't see the lines. Oh, here it is. I would describe the people who were brothers of the red earth and the red rock and the red streams of the hills. Well, Scotland, you know, it can turn red, I guess, with the heather, especially in the fall, maybe. Okay, but then look at this right at the end. The groom... Would have driven, and this is again, we're back with the groom who, who was um, uh, at the beginning of the story, taking him to the estate, and who he admired, I think, because he, he kept the horse neat or something. The groom would have driven me sedately through the park, but I must have, have speed or go mad. I took the reins from him and, we, and put the horse into a canter. We swung through the gates and out into the moor road, for I could have no peace till the ghoulish elder world was exchanged for the homely ugliness of civilization. Once only I looked back, and there, against the skyline, with a solitary lit window, it's a gothic romance right there, the house of Moore stood lonely in the red desert. Red desert? Mm. Right? So he knows exactly what he's doing. We're having trouble picking it all up, because... We're reading it more than uh, 130, like 131 years later, right? <laughs> like it's it's hard for us, um, but he's putting all the work in. Holy cow! This is fun stuff. I I really dig this story. It's just um, 
it it doesn't it's not filmable in the normal way it would have to have narration and then we have to have like sort of a comedic narrator character and then this very it, it's super much like um like he's coming at it from like I'm a simple guy I know about Jesus I heard of him I just like shooting things <laughs> and then and this other guy he's like a Lovecraftian character and his wife um, she's like, I, I respect you. You're my cousin. Please help my husband. No one else can. And I'm like, how is he going to help? Right? How is he going to help? He can't help. Yeah. But it happens in in the Fall of the House of Usher the exact same way. Right? I go to visit my friend because I got a letter. And the letter said, you know, come, come. <laughs> and then you get there and it's like a madhouse. And in the in the end of uh, the Poe, the house has like a giant crack and descends into like like it literally cracks apart and collapses into the the surrounding tarn, right? And I was like, well, that's the end of that house. <laughs> and it's, it's like it could all be a metaphor for like for you know venereal disease, <laughs> but um, you can also take it as like the you're go crazy if you start thinking about um, all the servants who built that giant house for you. Where are the kids in this family, huh? Gotta ask you that. Mm. Right? There are none. There are none. They're doomed. The end of the House of Usher well, here. Or more. The yeah. House of More. And so, like, he when he chooses these names, um, More, like, I was, I, when I was listening to you read it, I'm like, I wonder how that's spelled. It's just more, 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 right? Yeah. And what? Why is it fin? De, why is fin de sickle so important? Because it's the end of the cycle of empire, right? We've reached our peak. What the queen? The queen's just had her jubilee. What's left? Well, he gets to go off to be Canada and be governor general for, you know, the thirties. But mm. it's all downhill from there. So, mm-hmm. it, it, it's really interesting because I think that Buchan is very much like uh, Ladlaw, right? He's thinking about this stuff. It's it's bubbling up inside of him. And he just puts it on the page. But there's also this other part of him that, yeah, he likes to go out on hikes. <laughs> like, uh, if you see photos of Buchan as Governor General of Canada, he's not just sitting in Ottawa uh, signing papers. He's He's... He's the Queen's representative or the King's representative in Canada. So, like, there's a weird thing in Canada. Um, all the uh, all the uh, na- native tribes, right? Mostly um, Indians. There's some uh, Innu and uh, Inuit in the north, right? M- almost their their relationship to Canada is a weird one because they their treaty is not with Canada; it's with the Queen, right? Like when when they talk about when the royals come to Canada, Canadians generally don't care that much, but they always visit the royals always visit the the native places because that's who they dealt with was that ancestor, right? So they put them on the headdress, right? They say you're part of the tribe now. And that is like we have to be in a good relationship because our treaties with you. So John Buchan's out, you know, out in Alberta wearing a uh, Plains Indian head headdress, 
um, meeting with a bunch of these people who are saying, you know, we're, our connection is with you, not with these asshole whites who live near us. <laughs> it's with you, the royal estate. There's a, a weird kind of uh, dynamic going on. Um, it's almost like the natives have a closer relationship to Britain than okay, Canada just, does. You just dropped out there for a second. Oh, Jesse. shit. Sorry. But I, I got you up until the point when Buck and... Uh, was like when they, you talking about people saying, "Oh, we're we're not in with these guys close by. We like the royal family." Well, yeah, it's not it's not that they love the royal family. It's that their their relationship is with with the the royal family, right? It's they signed a treaty with the queen. And Jesse cut out again. Yeah, yeah, oh, he shit. did for me. Um, yeah, I don't know what's you. going on there. Well, <laughs> yeah. He said, yeah, he sounds like his connections. No, um, it's my, I'm, I'm looking at this this Wikipedia entry for Buckin. Uh huh. Got here at Bever Brooks' request. Buckin met Lord Beaverbrook and yeah. neo Jacobite Herbert Vivian and admitted to Vivian that he was a Jacobite sympathizer. So I clicked on this neo Jacobite, mm-hmm. you know, and apparently this was a movement in the early 20th century before World War One because. In World War One, some like the Stuart heirs were fighting for the Germans. That sort of ended that movement, right? But it was calling for like divine right of kings and, and a much more conservative monarchy to replace the or the the more liberal trends of the British monarchy. This is this is why he's rewarded. So even with... though it was like a Scottish thing, Jacobite is like a Scottish like bring back the Stuart kings, right? Mm-hmm. Scottish kings to rule the the, the kingdom. But maybe it's more like a, just this political conservatism. I, he, he's rewarded with uh, rewarded and shuffled off to Canada. You know, being a governor general is like, uh, you know, we do it. It's all domestic now. But it used to be they were all from the UK. It was just like a, you already gave him a knighthood. You already gave him a lordship. What else can you do? Well, send him to Australia to be governor general. Right. Send him to India. To but the thing general. we're talking about, I don't know how much you, you caught of this, Jesse, before you came back in because you're out for a while. Mm-hmm. This that he admitted to a neo-Jacobite journalist that he was a Jacobite sympathizer, right? Right. Which that didn't seem to jive with his kind of pro-imperial unionist position. But when I checked the site for neo-Jacobite, this was a real movement in the early 20th century mm-hmm. that was really pushing divine right of kings and guess a more Scottish view of the monarchy at the time, in contrast to the liberalism of like Lloyd George and these people. Yeah, the Scots are, are all in on empire in a way that the the Welsh aren't. Yeah, right. I think that's true. They 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 are the engineers of empire, literally. And right? as was Scotty from Star Trek. Is is he's actually from Canada? The actor's from Canada, but he puts on a Scottish accent because engineers of empire are Scottish. And so, yeah, like who's in charge now? And it, it it isn't it isn't uh, who's running England now? It's not the Scottish. It's it's the Americans, right? Airstrip one, yeah, etc. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I would take that. So, like. Either Scottish independence or Jacobite restoration. <laughs> That'll allow you to cover him? Yeah. 
just as long as they're not pure English, right? <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> so I think we need to do more Bakken. I'm I'm a fan. Um, this I was is, looking at his list of works. Yeah, he's got a lot. Interesting stuff. Like talking, like Connor was going on about the the folk horror. I think yeah. some of this after stuff might be. Yeah, the Green Wildebeest is I one I've seen. Uh, the names of it's it's a it is I believe set in Africa. Um, well, there's also a really good one that's never been done before. What's um, uh, called um, No Man's Land. Yeah, you that mentioned that's the, the one with the cave uh, entrance. Yeah, and what it is is uh, um, it's a similar character to this one. He goes way out into the moors of Scotland and he runs into um, a group of like basically uh, picks, right? Of so like ancient. It's Ro- Robert E. Howard. People. That's it, uh, yeah. Did a similar thing. It, it's very similar to um, Worms of the Earth. Yeah. Not actually. No, no. It's not at all similar. But no, it's the a premise. Sort of similar idea. Yeah. Um, and uh, and um, but it reminded me a bit of when we. In this story, when he's talking about like the ancient man of uh, oh, yeah. the Moor, who is like brutal but also wise, that's another that also comes up in that story, um, No Man's Land. Uh, but is it? It's a bit more action packed. Like it's got some some pretty good action scenes in it, um, and probably a bit of a less deep story. But uh, there's a lot of good fucking stuff. Yeah. Um, no, he's a, he's a really ta- he's he's he didn't get his writing career based on him being rich, right? This is actually yeah. like he got a writing career in addition to be being a servant of empire. Um, it, what's funny is Thirty Nine Steps is 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 a pot boiler. It's not really well written in the the structure, um, but it's really fun to read. It's like a it's mm. like an action packed fun read. Whereas this is like this is. He's got some very interesting ideas. But notice, we've got, like, Justinian and Theodora, who you don't just throw that in there for nothing, right? It's because Mm. they're parallel to the two uh, people in this House of Moore. Yeah. The lines... uh, uh, I'll just read this top of 805 second column. No. There was my friend with his suffering face, and it was the library of Moore. And then he spoke of Theodora, actress, harlot, devotee, empress. For him the lady was but another part of the uttermost horror, a form of that shapeless thing at his side. I felt myself falling under the fascination. I have no nerves and little imagination. See, this is what I'm talking about. He's dumb. But oh, yeah. in, it's, he's supposed to be dumb. But in a flash, mm. I seem to realize something of that awful fear, featureless face crouching ever at the man's hand till darkness and loneliness come, and it rises to its mastery. I shivered as I looked at the man in the chair before me. These dull eyes of his were looking upon things I could not see, and I saw their terror. I realized that it was a grim, earnest uh, it was grim earnest for him. No n- nonsense or no, some devilish fancy. So he's always throwing the devil in here. Um, and I think that that's something he does understand. Uh, the narrator's throwing it in. But he also, like, 
There's two times he laughs out loud inappropriately <laughs> when these guys like dying at the table or whatever. First time he he makes that joke in his own head about um, the tea party. He says it was a mad tea party with vengeance, Sybil, the melancholy little dormouse, and Ladlaw, the incompre- incomprehensible Hatter. That makes him Alice, right? I laughed aloud, but checked myself when I caught my cousin's eye. She's like, "You doofus." <laughs> he's he's a he's a real jerk. <laughs> he's just it's, he's he's like he not doesn't notice like that you know. Yeah. And the other time his, he laughs aloud, it's like she's like horribly anxious about her husband. Yeah. Yeah. And worried for him, and this this jerk's just coming in and have it and like giggling to himself because <laughs> yeah. he always thinks it's funny. It's horrible. And, um, and so she so says, she says, don't don't ask about this shit when I'm around. Let him tell yeah. you uh, when I'm not around. Meanwhile, she's like camped out be- outside the library. He gets in the library with him and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. It's the devil. <laughs> and then the guy laughs. He laughs out loud. And then he says, oh, you're serious. <laughs> and he says, he's nuts in his own head, right? So he's always dismissing what's going on. And so it sort of subverts what we would... Uh, we normally think of as the the way to do a Lovecraft story, right? The way we do a Lovecraft story is j- there's no jokes ever. There's only like wry senses of like, oh, that's clever wordplay, or the situation is funny, or we see it as funny because we're so distant from it. But here, he's like he, he he's like a bad house guest who's like mooching off of everybody he goes to see. And he lives, his ecosystem is to, you know, supply, like, the reason he has to leave, I keep bringing it up, um, is because the people he's doing the uh, estate of are want to go on vacation right now, which means they need some money, which means he has to free it up. Um, and I, I want to go back to just mention, uh, I mentioned it briefly at the beginning, um, he mentions the Clanroydans. So what, what, why is this detail in here? I'm not 100% sure that he had planned this out, but Clan Roydens is a fictional family he uses uh, multiple times. So if you go searching for it, like uh, the Clan Royden, oh, there's a Clan Royden character named Sandy. That's just a, you know, a family name he's made up for Scotland. Um, in uh, the sequels to The 39 Steps, um, I think Green Mantle and a couple other other ones. Um this is his like Lovecraftian universe sort of thing. It's his way of uh, grounding what are his essentially real experiences of you know being a Scottish lord with with sh- being able to sh- file off the uh, the serial numbers and and talk about the things that he's seeing. Like this mm. is a very realistic story in the sense that people did get these terrible diseases and it did fuck up their family and their relationships and they were marrying their cousins and their uh, their lifestyle was fueled by inheritance and uh, like why is it why was it a good idea for her to marry him for money because our narrator is poorer he has to actually work for a living occasionally he has to go, like He's he's staying for another ten days, but and he's 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 off on his whole summer. It sounds like he has like endless vacation time, but 
it's all contingent on him not in, not needing to be in the office to get some signature or something, right? So he's very familiar with uh, this upper-class rich guys who run the country in a certain sense. They're all lords. And they also are doing nothing. They're not productive. But we've got in the background Ladlaw, Robert, or Robin. Ladlaw, in the background, is like sort of coming into a slight realization that our narrator can't do, that this is all built on blood. This is all built on the labor and, more importantly, the deaths of the people who lived here. It's all in service of the empire. So you can say Justinian's a saint, but the guys who are being writing the official histories are then writing the secret histories because they don't fucking like it. So he's doing the same thing in this story, right? It seems to be about upper-class twits uh, having a sort of um, a small incident. But it's actually, I think, very subversive. He is a Jacobite, um, but he's also a servant of whatever crown is actually in power, right? It's, it's, it's like he's a hypocrite, but he's... Um, he knows it. <laughs> He's kind of admitting yeah. it, right? It's subversive in the sense that, uh, or is it subversive in the sense that he's basically saying, wow, these upper class people are fucked. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Cause uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's rather unusual. I made a joke about, mm. about how, you know, uh, uh, Will, uh, Emmons made a, uh, he said that science fiction is, uh, you know, comes in lots of different flavors or something like that. And then, uh, but fantasy seems to be more, uh, for elitists. And I, I made the joke, um, what a shocker coming from, uh, uh, a genre founded by Lord Dunsany and, uh, an Oxford Don, right? <laughs> like J.R.R. Tolkien, who's, you know, he's not a, he's not a, uh, lord or anything. But he has a job for life, and it was a good job. And he spends all his time, you know, reading really old, weird books, writing up books. Doesn't need to worry about money. He's got a nice cottage on the on the place, and also is in, inventing his own languages and stuff. So, um, most people who are born into that class are not Lord Dunsany. Notice that <laughs> there aren't like fifteen guys who are really good writers who are all lords. That's pretty unusual. It's more like some Stephen King kind of guy or uh, some guy who, you know, just uh, born in Texas or, you know, it's unusual. Mm. And so most of them are wasting their lives. Buchan is an extraordinary person being both diplomat and soldier and uh, writer. Yep. Yeah. Unusual. He's a little more mm. aware, maybe. Hmm. Of that thin to sickle, actually sickling. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Um, he's, mm. he's he's solid, right? Like this is not um, this is not pastiche of weird weird uh, fiction. It's the uh, legitimate stuff, and it's running on the same sort of r roots as um, uh, Mackin, but um, coming at it from a way different angle. Yeah. You know, Ambrose Bierce, I, I just read another Ambrose Bierce the other day, and Ambrose Bierce is a, a little bit like Poe, but he is so subversive of his, of his own text 
that he's like he's he's ironic all the time. <laughs> like it's all irony all the time. And when he doesn't do it, it's a shock. And and yet he's still ta- telling the same kind of like very subversive stories uh, that are you know kind of on the borderlands of of the weird. But if you if you're not like you say, why is this so weird in this way? It's because he's having fun. He's doing this weird thing. Like when you read William Gibson, right? Why is he always talking about what things are made out of? Like like <laughs> the the material of the of the cloth uh, on the chair. Or the the color of the of the metal on the on the table, right? Like it's chrome. Why do we need to know that? Because that's what he's interested in. And Buchan has has a kind of an ironic over overlay. Um, when you read the Thirty Nine Steps, it's very. Um, he cut out there again, just. Oh shit! Oh, I, I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> Doesn't matter. We're closing in on being done, anyways. I think. Hello, can anyone hear me? I can I hear, hear you. you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Again. I don't know what's going yeah. on. It's usually not many internet problems. Jesse. No. It, it seems, yeah, no. That it seems, is strange. Um, I'm not sure what time it is for him over there. It might be. You guys you know, can't hear me? 6.30? Yeah. You guys don't normally record around this time, do you? No. Yeah. Okay, back. yes. I could hear you the whole time uh-huh. there. And my internet's okay. saying I'm fine. It must be some sort of Skype issue. Yeah, um, whatever. You were just about to say what Buchan was interested in. You said William Gibson interested in materials. Yeah, and Buchan Buchan has got uh, he's got this sort of um, adventury thing that he overlays on everything. He's fun. Mm. He's he's at the adventure, and so this is a bit unusual in that our our fun adventury guy is sort of stymied at all all opportunities. He. he Wants to, the, the most exciting thing that happens is they, he runs away at the end and, uh, the guy says, you have to drive the horse for me from the wrong side of the seat. Like, that's the exciting yeah. part. It's not, that's not exciting. And he's stymied mm-hmm. and he wants to leave all the time, right? <laughs> but that's a weird thing to do to your story. It's, it's probably why this story is not as well known. Yeah. Because, um, like, if you're a fan of Bucket, you probably know his adventure stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you, if that's what you liked and that's what you've read and you came to this story, you'd be like, what the hell is this? This is so different and, and boring comparatively. Um, but this was, I think, uh, I don't know whether I'd read any Bucken before this. I think this might've been, even been the first story of his that I'd read. Um, it's good stuff. Yeah. I really, I, I like his writing. And it, it is very, um, it's, it's surprising to me that I didn't find Lovecraft having commented on this. Well, he's, he was familiar, familiar with the Grove of Ashtaroth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that's in supernatural, uh, horror and fiction, um, or literature, mm-hmm. uh, in that essay. But, um, but yeah, it is surprising because I think this is really his weirdest story. It's pretty um, weird. And I wouldn't be surprised if Lovecraft quite liked it for the atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, atmosphere um, is great. Well, yeah. It's um it's pretty good. Uh yeah. I didn't have either of you ever read um a book called The Weird and the Eerie by Mark Fisher? Mm-mm. 
I know who Mark Fisher is. I didn't know he he read a he wrote a book about this. Yeah, he did. It I think it came out of um like a short essay he did on weirdness in fiction and lit and uh and just in media in general. But um he tries to define weirdness and he also adds in some of his own sort of definitions. Like he creates a definition for what uh what is weird and then also uh he adds on a definition for eerie. So something is eerie. Um uh, it means a sort of different thing. So he would say that um, the more in this story would be eerie. Mm. There's nothing really, um, there's no intent, there's no uh, consciousness to the more. And so it's just this vast empty thing that is very strange. Mm-hmm. But he would say, but Mark Fisher, according to his definitions, he would say that the situation with Ladlaw was weird mm. because there is some sort of a weird, a force that we don't understand or comprehend, but clearly has intent in this situation. And it's outside of our, of the audience's understanding. Um, Sounds and, right to me. Uh, yeah. And even though like this story, I can't, I really appreciate a story where the author is kind of brave enough to just leave it and never resolve. Like we just, mm-hmm. it's, it's odd. Like, uh, presumably if this is Bucken narrating to us and he's talking to us very casually when he mentions, you know, the clan Roydens and this house and you should know what these things are. Um, but the story just completely stops and we never get a resolution for what happens to Ladlaw in the end. We never get a resolution to him. He, it, he gets out of the gate and looks back once and then cut off. Um, and normally, you know, I think publishers probably hate that, which is why you never see it. Yeah, you know, uh, um, a, a story. Um, by the way, that book is available as an audiobook. We need to book it as a show. It's only four four and a half hours. Apparently, which the book is the, oh the weary the weird, the weird and the eerie. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Let's it's do a show it. on it's, it. Um, right. It's a bit of a like a, what no, do you call it like a nonfiction shot. philosophy essays. It says so. Yeah, he's he's, he, um, he's thinking it through. Yeah, I think he uh, is tackling like many, many different um, films and TV shows and books in the essay. And he kind of jumps from one from each of them. Let's do it. So as a whole, um, there's a lot in there to unpack, but it's quite good. Let's do I want to do a show on that book. That sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, All right, guys, I got to go, though. Well, thank cool. you. Um, well, let's. Go. When, when, can we book you a time for this book? For the weary and the eared, we, eerie and the weird, okay. <laughs> weird and the eerie. What did you say? We can, uh, but we also, if you want to go back to Buckin, I think there's this Prester John. You mentioned Prester John. Yeah, I'm Ooh, interested. Yeah. A That's a novel. novel. Uh, I think it's probably not short. And I don't know of the audiobook, but we can... 175 pages, original publication. Only 175? But that's probably not too bad. Yeah. There weren't too many words on the page. <laughs> but they are big words. They're long words. Uh, so the next available slot... What's it? 19th? Uh, let me look. Uh, the next available slot is the 19th, yes. Um, I, mean, I don't know. It should be good. Oh, we can move that date uh, to a Saturday uh, if... I think it's not a Saturday. Is that good for you, Connor? 
Um, this time is good. August. Okay, what, what day is it? August, uh, oh, wait. No, that's September. It's September 19th, uh, 18th would be for you. Or 18th for us. So that'd be the 19th for you, a Sunday, right? Okay. Yeah, I reckon that'd work. All right, and 4 p.m., our time, uh, or my time. And then uh, it's The Eerie and the Weird by Mark Fisher, right? Or The Weird yeah. and the Eerie. Yep. Eerie. That's cool. I had never heard of that book. I'm really glad yeah, it's an audio book. It's about four hours long. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The audio book's quite good. And I'm it's probably better than the actual. It's a better way to present the information than, an, than the actual book. Awesome. I think. Well, uh, have a good one, Evan. Um, I'll look into the Prester John. All right. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Next week. Uh, I will get that to you, yeah. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. The military. Um, and this guy, Lieutenant General, General Frewen is F-R-E-W-E-N is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, but insider knowledge, he likes everyone to call him JJ. Um, because I guess it makes him a bit more human. But I saw him in the lobby of my office the other day. Mm-hmm. Just kind of um, a bit like starstruck almost mm-hmm. since you see him on the news and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Don't get starstruck. So, They're not better than no, you. No. They're not smarter than you. No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> judging by the way stuff's going That's right. with the rollout, they're definitely not. <laughs> but it was uh, it was odd to see him. He looked like he was in a rush yeah. going somewhere. Um, but yeah, how's everything in Canada and how are you going? It's, it was very hot yesterday. It's yeah, yeah. It's uh, we had like a sprinkle of rain. And Evan, you here with us? Yeah. I'm okay. Here. All right. Hello. I had some how's trouble there at the beginning. Uh, yeah, it's hot. Uh, there's no smoke yet, but we're told we're going to be getting the, the smoke. There, Is there fires? Yeah. There's usually fires in the summer now, but, um, they're not, uh, floating in our direction. They're floating east. So they're getting it in Calgary and I think Paul's getting some in, uh, mm. Minnesota, Wisconsin, one of those cheesy places. Mm. <laughs> get those areas. I think Evan, you're in Wisconsin. Is that right? Yeah. What's the difference between Minnesota and Wisconsin besides cheese? You're you're pretty far from your mic. Energy. Energy? Just getting your uh, tail end of you there. What'd you say? More Scandinavians. Yeah, you're, you got to get your mic uh, plugged in or something. Oh, I see. Okay, so there's another call there. I'm going to, how do I end that call? God damn it. Skype is so fucking stupid. Delete conversation? Would that end the 
call that we were having a minute ago? I don't know. Uh, Connor's I'm uh, muting and unmuting. Um, I'm not seeing no, no. what's wrong with Evan's microphone, so maybe it's an internet issue. Uh, it's winter it could be. for you, right? Um, Midwinter? Yeah, for me it is. It's uh, bloody cold. and uh, Nice. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was, we have, uh, what do you call it, like Scottish mist, like this whole winter, which is, hmm. it's like, it can't decide whether it wants to rain or just be foggy. So it's uh, horrible. Oh, these <laughs> all sound like good things to me. Well, um, it's an, it's a new experience. Last winter was shock was really mild, um, and then this winter's come back with a vengeance, hmm. and it is cold. It is cold, cold. Um, let me see what I don't know. Do you do you guys use Celsius or Fahrenheit? Celsius. Celsius. Amer- oh, Americans good. use okay, so Fahrenheit. Like, yeah, the only ones. Oh yeah, no, we do use it on our ovens though, for some reason. Fahrenheit. Yeah. Ah, okay. I don't know why. Um. Yeah. Um. It's probably like I don't know leftovers. Sharing, yeah, recipe yeah, leftovers or, or something. Share, sharing food and stuff with America. Or Who something. knows? Who mm. knows? We used to we used it's, to be like them, but we we decided to get over it. To, to start with the metric, Good it's uh, metric just makes more sense. Oh yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm simpler. shocked that um, they still use miles in England. I thought they would have gone to kilometers. Do you uh, guys use kilometers? Yeah, yeah, we do. But um, you know, you, you still talk yeah. about mileage and stuff. But a lot of this is legacy stuff, and you know, like mm. you talk to uh, uh, younger people, your age or younger, they don't know what those things are. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. But um, when I was a kid, that you know, miles were still in I in the think. conversation. Yeah, sorta. Hmm. Yeah. Um. It's a tough one to switch over. They're like so many things are stuck in legacy stuff. Yeah. They should. I mean, they should um save it for the podcast, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, this this won't be relevant to the podcast. But That's what I'm I was saying. Say, Germans are really good with their grammar. They've had oh, yeah. historically, right? Yeah, they have different grammar for different places, and right. they all get together and decide with a committee how they're going to spell a word, and then that's it. Then everyone, anybody who doesn't agree, gets put up against the wall and shot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They take grammar very seriously. <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, but so, yeah the, that is so difficult. I learned that new vocab word. I've never seen word. it before. Distrait. Yeah, I thought that was a. I seem to remember looking it up um, yeah, you were when correct. I recorded it, because um, I was like, "What is what is this?" Um, a good word, but uh, um, we need to get Evan in as soon as you get your mic working. Evan, you knock on the. You're you're so quiet. It's it's like you're there, but there's no oomph behind it. Do you have a gain setting on your microphone at all? Oh, oh he's no. leaving. He's, okay, we'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah, it might be a gain problem. Yeah, I I think if he has one of those the snowballs, I think he yeah, said the I blue snow. Um, that I think that has gain on it, but it might be. There might be some setting on his computer he can... Because it just sounds like it's turned I, down. I think he's yeah. a laptop guy. 
and laptops mm. are are I I think a lot of the problems in this world are caused by insufficient power. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, that might be true. If uh, it's a condenser, yeah, it, it sucks and, power yeah. from the machine. Machine doesn't yeah. get enough power, and it doesn't quite. Yeah, so you need yeah. to like use a uh, powered. Uh, oh, I'm here. You're there, but you're still pretty quiet. Uh, did you do you have oh. a game thing on your mic? Yeah, like a little knob for spinning your gain up or gain down. Whatever that is, is noisy. <laughs> yeah, that's setting one. Setting oh. one's always noisy on this thing. Yeah, it's... It sounded it, a little bit better. I don't know if it's better. It's more room noise, but not volume higher. Oh. That's uh, better. Keep going. Okay. That's now you're fine. better. That's my normal. Okay, well, we got you. That's the one we want. Okay. Whatever setting that is, don't move your head away in any direction. Just stare straight at the microphone. <laughs> well, that's the setting it was on. I re-plugged it in. All right. Well, yeah. It, uh, it, you're plugging that's it into a laptop, right? Do. You're plugging it into a laptop, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so my my theory is that you don't have enough power. Um, that's why yeah. Marissa has this problem, too. She's a laptop person. Um, people who travel a lot have laptops, and they just don't have enough power. Uh, that's my theory. I prefer the desktop, and I have one in Taiwan, but, but I can't it, get there. I know, but you can get like a um, a USB, uh, I don't know, a powered USB, what are they called? Hub? I don't know. Yeah, I know. And you plug, you, you, that's got like a big-ass... Thing you plug into the wall and it, it's like trying to over overdose everything you're connected to. Like I have so many USB things plugged into my computers, I have to have like two two uh, two twelve USB things full and powered up all the time, and still I have problems because I have so many hard drives and scanners and little lights and fans, <laughs> all the sh- shit plugged in. And microphones. Don't forget the microphones. So yeah, mm. usually it was a it's a, a power supply problem. It just doesn't have the the juice. So if you if you uh, have one of those things, you plug that in. It 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 doesn't tell you like you don't you're not getting enough power. But I've had this experience a couple of times when I bought computers early on. I like spent weeks trying to troubleshoot stuff, and then it mm-hmm. some guy says, you know, you might not be getting enough power. I'm like what? What's that? And then like. Ever since then, I've had whatever computer I buy, I always have a bigger power supply put in. Because whatever they put in is just enough to make sure that the thing, the the keyboard and mouse that come with it will run. That's it. Right? Because it pays them, it costs them more to put in anything else. Right? But if you're building a custom set, you can get much bigger or higher rated power supplies or whatever. And that helps, but also, Making sure your USB extension things are plugged in. <sighs> I guess we don't need to talk about this anymore. <laughs> All right, yeah, Evan. I know I need to buy things besides beer and cigarettes. Yeah, while you're at the beer and cigarette store, you, <laughs> you can uh, grab yourself a power supply for your computer or your USB hub. Um, uh, Muds Women. Did you see my... Uh, tweets about I muds. Saw muds. 
Well, I I saw that a long time ago. More recently, I saw the sequel to Mud's Women. The, which we didn't get to yet. It's later yeah. in season one, I think. Okay. Uh, but well, did you see my back, tweets about yeah, it? That's a really interesting episode, which we'll talk about when we get there. I, I didn't realize, I couldn't, rem- I, I remembered Kirk was Randy. It's been a long time since I've seen the original Star Trek. You know, probably 15 years or more. Um, mm-hmm. Probably more than that. Um, and uh, so I remembered Kirk was Randy, but uh, like everybody on the ship is like slapping asses. And it's like, it's <laughs> it's surprising. But Mud's women, and the the worst part about it is, I tweeted you know big long thread about it, basically saying it, it's a it's not a utopia. The Federation's like, they're like cops pulling people over on the side of the road, you know, arresting them, seizing their drugs that are like, he says they're illegal, but like the only side effect is that they wear off, and and really <laughs> they have they they're they're like placebos too. Like <laughs> they have the if you you believe that you're getting the drug, you, the placebo works as well. It's like it's incoherent unless you you see it as like it's they're evil, like they they're the cops. The Kirk's well, a cop. You remember that Trekonomics book? Even he had to pirouette on this this issue, saying it didn't really become the post scarcity sure. utopia until Star Trek Four. Sure, because they don't even mention money is not like no money. They have money in original Star Trek. After after they they do the refit in you know episode, uh, the first movie maybe they 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 have replicators online or something I don't know, but uh, yeah. there's going to be a ton of that, shit that, for that your sex book. Is more of the Roddenberry influence I think. Ton this, of shit for your it. sex book. Right, and that one was written yeah, by Roddenberry. Be fun to to talk about this. Uh, yeah, cringy fun though because there's a like there's a like a lot of Crazy. rape talk, a lot of rape talk in in Star Trek, a lot of yeah, rape like, talk. Oh my god! Like maybe in later seasons, so, no, but well, I'm sure his, just, his relationship with with the Yeoman is really problematic too, right? Uh, oh my, uh, there, there is an. If you have to use the word cringy. I'll have to throw out the word problematic. Oh, uh, dude, the yeah, the word. Uh, there's a. It's a previous episode to that, but basically Kirk goes through the transporter, gets divided into two, um, and then Kirk says, there's somebody going, he's like on the bridge bridge of the Enterprise, the good Kirk is on the bridge of the Enterprise, he says, somebody going around the ship looking like me and raping people, um, if you see them, uh, report to me. And then Yeoman Rand says, yeah, you know, with Spock standing there, has to recount how Captain Kirk tried to rape her a few minutes ago. Jeez. And she's reporting to to Captain Kirk, and he says, "I never did that." <laughs> so, like, he goes and makes that announcement. And it's like if you look at the HR department, this is like red flags everywhere. <laughs> red oh, yeah. flags. Red flags. Oh, I, I, the one I really like is this uh, the historian, the ship's historian. Did you meet her yet? Uh, no, she. I'm. I, I think I'm she only un- shows up in one episode. Okay. Which, there was like a one of these top ten like top ten jobs on Star Trek. Yeah, that you didn't think were there, but actually, a ship's historian makes a lot of sense. It right? makes a lot of sense because you'd need someone like how did how did uh, 
how did the Leonidas deal with this? Uh, Thermopylae, well, all of stuff, you know, similar situation. <laughs> well, yeah. Or, speaking of, speaking as a historian who's uh, underemployed, military history, right? The guy's training in the Federal War is like all military history when he's becoming an officer. Yeah, but um, but she like she's like somehow like she's like seduced by Khan and runs off with him. But who's the who's the one who's seduced by um? By the god Apollo. <laughs> is she a historian too? Well, maybe. Is that the historian? She's, no, she's the ship's mythologist or something, time. right? <laughs> yeah. We're beeping down to the planet of Apollo. Um, get me, uh, go down to deck six and tell uh, Dr. Thermopolis uh, <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I need her expertise. Um, and then meanwhile, she falls in love with him. Um, I think there's even a line somewhere in Star Trek's early series about about uh how he can't uh, women on the ship are not a good idea because they keep getting married and and thus quitting you know mm. which is yeah. uh makes sense but um what's uh, yeah so uh, we need to talk about uh why you're wrong about the doomcock <laughs> all right i i think but I maybe, know, I, maybe I don't know how much I, time Connor has, so maybe we talk about that after. I don't know. I don't know. I've got I, plenty I of times. I've good, watched good. Red Letter Media. Somehow, I, maybe I watched a few because you told me, but now they always show up in my thread. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's not as good as Red Letter Media. He's like comrades, too. He's got these other comrades out yes. there. That basically, they make their living. Whatever comes out in pop They're, they're kind of outrage, outrage, outragers. Yeah, they're like cultural MAGA in a way. Now, I yeah. watched... I. I I didn't see them do this with She-Ra so much because that was actually a pretty good series. But for some reason, they they found this this Masters of the Universe series like really something they're going to go after. Well, I, you know, I don't get it. Why? It's not woke. It's I didn't it's not see it. Good. The the source material is so ridiculous it's, that I don't know anyone had nostalgia over it. One uh, way or another. One one it's thing. It's actually much more interesting than I remember when I was a kid, though. Even though it was kind of shitty. One thing I think you're missing is that um, even if you're stupid, um, which I think a lot of people who do those kinds of YouTube videos are, like just generally not not bright boys, you know, um, a lot of conservative people are very, and I'm saying small c conservative, you know, just like uh, uh, family values, that sort of thing. <laughs> like that. Um, they they're simple. <laughs> but they mm-hmm. but they can smell hypocrisy. So one of yeah. the things that's that's going on with um you know like oh, the reason maga is so popular is not because Trump is just so skilled at doing what he's doing. It's because he has the right enemies. Um he hates the bushes, he hates the clintons. He hates Obama. You know if if you say you hate those things, you suddenly get a big army of people behind you. So in terms of um, that show, Masters of the Universe reboot, whatever it was called, um, He-Man without He-Man, or He-Man as the secondary character in the He-Man, He-Man like show. He-Man's like three of the episodes. Yeah, yeah. What, what, whatever it is. Um, Kevin Smith, who is a filmmaker and I, I would say a medium talent at best, um, you know, he, he's, he's okay at what he does. Um, he at one point said, I don't... I never watched He-Man. I thought He-Man was stupid. And then the studio asked him to 
run the He-Man show, and he's like, this He-Man is great! <laughs> so, like, hypocrisy is, um, is funny. And it, it, and then you, you know, like, all the, the modern Star Trek, I just saw somebody trying to defend this upcoming Star Trek, whatever it's called, Brave New Worlds or whatever, and they're showing clips of the producer saying, we listen to you. These are going to be single episodes, not season long arcs. Some of them are going to be horror. Some of them are going to be funny, right? We're, we're listening to you, right? And then, um, the reason the, that woke argument, uh, that somebody made about Doctor Who, which I think is a very poorly thought out argument. Um, and, the reason people didn't complain about it being woke a long time ago is, first of all, the word didn't exist. We had politically correct before that, which was a thing in the 90s that, you know, Bill Maher was, had a show called Politically Incorrect, and he was against political correctness, um, which is not a straight uh, left-right issue. It is definitely related to being conservative or being liberal, but um, I'm not a conservative and I'm not a liberal and I think political correctness is is retarded <laughs> for lack of a better word um and and so when you have something like Doctor Who which is which has always been pushing for like being nice to other human beings rather than uh uh you know shitting all over them or stealing their resources and and putting their bones in the earth <laughs> um, and then the writing goes downhill. People only notice the 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 messaging. They don't notice that the writing is is you know it's it's not that the stories are different necessarily. It's that the writing is shittier. And and now it's a much more explicit. Everybody's pushing that agenda shit. I think agendas are really good for writing. When you only have the agenda shit and you're casting for, like, we need more diversity in Dune. So how can we do that? Well, we can't make Paul, <laughs> I know, uh, transgender woman or whatever. We just can't do that because, you know, we won't get any bums in seats. Um, however, <laughs> we can do somebody, surely. And they look around the room for a character that doesn't really matter what gender they are and they find one. So that token, you know, thing or like casting, like there's uh, this weird, weird thing going on where, um, blind casting is bad because black people should play back black people and white people should play white people and Italian should be like, that is actually the opposite of good, I good thinking. That's just like a well, blanket policy for everything. Hamilton was horrible and they did blind. I casting. never saw, I never saw. Hamilton. I mean, it's horrible, but they did blind, blind casting. Uh, well, I thought it was, uh, wasn't it supposed to be bl just, uh, like, uh, pushing black people? I, I thought it, that was the point well, of it. there's white performers and black performers. Is there? Black okay. Black play white people and... There's a show called Bridgerton that somebody are. mentioned that I, again, another show I haven't seen. So it's hard to argue, it's hard to argue, um, in favor of a show like Doctor Who, because I stopped watching it after... I don't, I don't really know Doctor Who, so I don't know what people are complaining about. Yeah. With this Masters of the Universe, first of all, I don't believe there's that many people that have been waiting for this Masters of the Universe <laughs> reboot. Nobody. It's such a, <laughs> the source material is so 
flame, right? Yeah. Like, I was surprised how good She-Ra was, the reboot, the five seasons. I don't know if this, I don't think this will get to five seasons. No, I think it was just a movie, but right? Appeared as, well, they're, they're, this is part one. There's going to oh, be okay. a part two. I guess this. So it's, it's fine. It's, it, it had some interesting stuff and it's not woke. There's, I don't really see any representation issues and, I think I think it was it was mostly just in the fact that He Man is only in three episodes of whatever however long you said six. I don't know. Well, yeah, he he like sacrifices himself and then he's dead. And then there's the show was He Man and the Masters of the Universe. L and they can bring him back from that. The the example from Doctor Who. There's a cliffhanger. Skeletor wins at the end. That's it. So He Man's defeated, killed, and then defeated. I guess so. I guess it makes him look. Yeah, emasculates him, right? Not, not, and then they replace him with awesome, um, a masculine, masculine-looking w- woman. So uh, the the example from Doctor Who that is often shown is when uh, whatever actress is playing the Doctor um, first has a scene with somebody who recognizes the Doctor for usually being a man. They say the villain says. Uh, you're not the doctor. The doctor's not a female. And, and she says, I've had an upgrade. Right? So, <laughs> that is not, that is not feminism. That is, um, emasculation. Right? Yeah, now, that is a, a kind point. of feminism. But, but the point of that is to, like, there, there was scenes from Discovery that had a guy who, actually, I think it was in it, the guy who plays Archer. The actor who plays Archer, he's like supposed to be an annoying man who knows everything and is trying to mansplain to some bridge officer. And he gets killed in the episode and she's like happy and the audience is supposed to be happy because he didn't listen to her. He, is this he, in Doctor Who? No, this is in this Star Trek Discovery. And we're sort of oh, jumping all around, I, uh, right? I, he's never in Dracula? He's never in Star Trek. No, 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 no. The guy who, remember the guy, the actor who plays Archer on Archer, (laughs) H. John Benjamin. Archer. I thought, I thought you meant Captain Archer. No, 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 no. No, the actor who plays Archer. He looks nothing like his character. He's all. He's just a voice actor. But they cast him in Discovery to play like a man. Um, and then they. I, it was it was like a short trek or something. I don't know. The, it was supposed to be funny, but it was basically we've just killed off. It's like doing a red shirt, but they killed him off on purpose uh, rather than to serve the plot. The whole point was to kill him off because we hate men, and or we hate mansplaining or whatever. And I'm like, that is, you know, my mom was a feminist. I went on those marches as a kid. I didn't have any choice. She wanted to go. I'm going. <laughs> so I understand what it's about. It's They were chanting, you know, like, equal rights, equal pay. <laughs> it wasn't like, we're better than men. <laughs> and if you say that, oh, men are better than women or women are better than men, just in general, rather than, you know, at lifting or, I don't know, nursing. <laughs> I think you're making a huge fucking mistake. You, you might say yes. men are better at writing, and I was like, well, you better narrow that down a lot, because if it's about guns, I'm sure you're right. But if it's, mm. if it's about, uh, you know, parenting, um, I don't know that men are better. Probably not. I don't know that Dr. Spock is inherently better because of his Y chromosome. Add, add parenting? 
at parenting. You know, like men and women are both parents. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there are things women are better at just in general because their interests are like, Mm. just overall, like if we were giving a SAT and of course we can't do that, but some sort Mm. of, uh, what we need is a Turing test for male or female. (laughs) (laughs) The Turing machine tests you to see if you're male or female based on your responses. Hmm. Why would why would we want to do that? Just to po- make the point that I think is correct that men and women are not identical, and yet we're not. Hmm. We're all individuals, right? Hmm. Dudes like collecting shit a lot more like than women do. Women work on relationships a lot more. Oh, that's and, that's. I don't think a not that's not a very controversial argument. I mean, that's what not like, not and uh, the transsexual movement says is men and women are different. That's the whole point, right? <sighs> Like I, I, am a, I, I am a yeah. woman. Some do, Someone some says, don't. Some a woman that, that's establishing a difference from whatever they were biologically assigned as yeah. assigned as biologically so, by society. So uh, you know, if you're if you're um, a guy watching a show that you think is for you, I don't know why you would think he man's for you as an adult. <laughs> but maybe it's wonderful. Maybe I'm wrong. I've never watched a full episode of He Man without you know being drunk or something well, I, I have know. now i've watched five of them <laughs> okay um but you have a kid maybe you can relate i know i want to know what people are pissed off about and there was nothing else on netflix yeah yeah there's a lot of nothing on netflix i think what, what do you think about this connie you're growing up in the woke world um i was gonna say i don't know whether you guys um need there was a uh adaption of one of terry pratchett's books called uh the watch right which is based on some of his characters yeah um, this world's fun. i don't know whether you've ever, ever read the books no. i haven't seen the tv show i think i kind of refuse to watch it but um what was interesting is like uh that book was fantastic because it had fantastic representation that was definitely not tokenism in any way he was just he just likes unusual characters sure. or just a, a wide variety of characters right um and uh like for instance the the like main sort of love interest um uh is sort of like a very unusual one right like the woman's not uh traditionally pretty and the and the guy's not traditionally i don't know handsome masculine sort of rom the lady's not figures. not slim and attractive and yeah, the man's exactly. not buff and bearded or whatever the current <laughs> male fantasy yeah. is. Or like he's and he's not totally uh, competent and in control all the time and witty. But um, they made an adaption, which yeah, I'm had, looking at uh, and they obviously changed that. <laughs> so um, so that they were like the woman was slim and pretty and very competent and the fella is handsome and whatever. But then they added in a bunch of other uh like representation um as well so they kind of took out the original like uh like i don't know diversity or di- representation and then added in other stuff as well um so it was weird yeah. to do that because yep. it's like it didn't need any of that it was already there um and uh i think ironically there was a um there's a character uh, who, which the whole point of the character is, you know, like female erasure, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. 
where like women accomplish things in history, but they're just not um, Theodora. They're either <laughs> who's, who's Theodora? <laughs> She's in our story today. Save it for the podcast, Jesse. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, and they uh, there's a like a a woman, and that's kind of um, her story. And uh, and instead, they took her out <laughs> and replaced her with a with a queer character, of which is just the the irony of uh, her stories about female erasure, erasure, I think. And then and they took her out. <laughs> yep. Um, well, they know better so, than uh, the writer who who wrote the book. Yeah, and uh, well, it's a shame because it had everything they should have wanted to make a to. Um, and but they're like, oh yeah, we know better. I think uh, Terry Pratchett's daughter, I think, was just like, ah, pff, this this sucks. So good for her. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I haven't watched. I tend to like. I I know that Doctor Who sort of changed it up in there, and uh, and they're like, okay, well, this Doctor's a female. Um, but uh. I don't know. If it doesn't really appeal to me, I tend to not watch it. It yeah. doesn't really bother me, but yeah. I just don't. Well, you're not wedded. Um, you haven't been watching Doctor Who for or Star Trek for 30, 40 years, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I watched Doctor Who when I was a kid, but then I kind of fell out of didn't. It's not really my but, thing. But so. when you were watching it, it was the shitty Doctor Who is my guess, the 2005. No. Yeah. Oh, that's the shit. Dude, um, that's the shitty Doctor Who. Well, actually, I watched. We watched a lot of the really old seventies. Oh, like, good. good. Like I remember early stuff, and then I watched um, David Tennant and the fellow before that, Christopher. Whatever. Yeah. Eccleston? The writing is just oh. shit, there, man. It's just not good. Um, as a kid, I liked it. Looking yeah. back now, yes, totally. Um, I, I mean, and, and I'm not. I, I wanted to like it. Because I, I was I was I was getting upset about Doctor Who going off the air originally in the eighties, but I was also saying this writing's sucking, right? Like the writing's yeah. getting worse. And then I think, and then they did a reboot TV movie in, on Fox News trying to or Fox Channel trying to you know bring it back, and it's like complete mm. flop. And then they wait another decade and bring it back, and it's like yeah, you you don't understand you don't understand what it's about. He's He's a scientist, not a guy who has a magic wand. The magic wand was just a, like a, it's a, it was part of the neat way. way to get him out of situation. Yeah, like, yeah. And, and so it was, it was like a writing crutch, right? Yeah. But yeah. it also allowed them to skip shit that was unimportant. You know, they, mm. you know, it was a super formulaic show, but the, but the good part was it, What's so interesting is Doctor Who is supposed. It's if you look at its structure, it's it's completely one hundred percent the time machine, except it doesn't have that opening uh, thing, and he doesn't go to other planets. But the the first episode of of Doctor Who, they go to like uh, uh, caveman times, right? And the second one they go to the Daleks, but then almost all the rest of the season or whatever it was called back then, it's just they go to historical places, and, you know, they, they go to uh, the Siege of Troy. or And so it was like, it was the same premise. And, and so if you remember how the time machine works, he loses his TARDIS, <laughs> right? 
He has to find it. That's the gimmick. And that allows him to explore the society. He also picks up a companion wherever he goes. In this case, it was uh, the girl, whatever her name was, Neela or Leela. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the little flower uh, girl. And it, it, they have a chaste relationship. Because it's not about going to romance people all over the planet. Even though, you know, Wells was really into having mistresses. That wasn't the point. The point was to... So, Doctor Who had something. And then they, they sort of lost the thread of what it was. Which is basically... History is really interesting. And there are other ways of living. And if this mm. goes on, right? Just traditional, you know, science fiction shit. And now it's like... Aliens invade the Earth, which one that we haven't used this alien in a while, and they just, or and they turn it into a horror show, or whatever. It, it just bad writing in general. So mm. I don't know. Star Trek. Star Trek has has shit the bed with Picard <laughs> so badly. Oh, yeah. I think uh, they should just leave. They, <laughs> I think they're doing another Indiana Jones movie <laughs> as well. <laughs> they get progressively no. like the the de- the decline there is so incredible. It's just like Star Wars, right? First one, amazing, can't believe it. Second one, wow, yeah. that was good. Third one, what the fucks with these Ewoks? You, you sort of got muddled, and then we wait twenty years for Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, <laughs> fuck that shit. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough, um, but I think. Yeah, the business is what drives it. Um, yes, it's all IP. All it's, everything's fucking IP. And I, I, I was thinking about, you know, there's like um, places all over the world, probably some in Australia even, where there's a little town somewhere or a province or what they're called territories and states where you are, where it's there's got a food named after it. Like cheddar is a is a town in England, right? Mm-hmm. Every part of France is a kind of food, right? Champagne, <laughs> bologna <laughs> is it in Italy, right? Everything is from some place. Uh, I have a joke about uh, Germany is just uh, about eating Hamburg hamburgers, Frankfurt Frankfurters, oh, yeah. and Essen. <laughs> Berliners. <laughs> yeah, Berliners. Everything's about eating, right? Um, mm. There's even one here, uh, Nanaimo is uh you know like a kind of dessert and none of these are patents nobody has the recipe patent for it right it's all public Mm. domain and so the good rises up and anybody can bake it at home and anybody can sell it to the grocery store and anybody can do and the good rises up but what we have now is a pattern of own every intellectual property milk the shit out of as much as you can use your leverage uh, you know, having only six corporations owning, you know, or it's not even that many, I think now, and movie studios, and, and they just, like, l- leverage the fuck out of everything, right? And so yeah. it's, it's like you're squeezing lemons that were s- squeezed decades ago, and you're wondering why it tastes like shit. Well, no wonder. Yeah. It's, um, what you're going to do is, like, kind of what I think I've done is to just totally disengage. Like, I just don't really watch movies any uh i watch i I guess i do kind of watch movies but i just don't pay attention to it yeah you don't need to pay attention to what they're advertising yeah you get good at sorting out like if um there's too much stuff to be trying to keep up on everything it's crazy and uh 
so I just like let everything kind of just flow by and occasionally I pick something out where it's like there's a movie coming up right um, that I want to see called uh, The Green Knight which is oh, yeah. uh, which is uh, there's I think the company's called A24 Films and mm-hmm. they generally make really good stuff oh that's good and it just looks like a, it looks like a solid film it's based like you know telling an Arthurian legend sort of story but it's got some horror elements and stuff and I'm like oh yeah that looks good that looks yeah like I think it's I remember original. seeing some trailer yeah. for it or something yeah it's not any kind of like I guess you could say that notice it's King public Arthur's domain brand. it's public domain yeah. material though totally um, I mean new uh, source material but, <laughs> yeah but it's but um you know it's like I wouldn't pay attention to everything but when you see something that's a little bit good that happens to kind of pop up, yeah. I'm just like, okay, check that out. So but, uh, the the show I, I I watched the entire first season of on Prime, not that I recommend you buy Prime or anything. I think you should pirate it. Um, is what called, is the? It's called Invincible. It's based oh, on. I've, yeah. It's based I've on a, a comic. Couple of, I've seen a couple of episodes of it. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I liked it. I'm not a super fan. I'm not, yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm a not superhero a fan. fan either. And I only got but, the first two volumes of it, but I'll tell you what it is. Kids love it. Um, oh, yeah. Because it, it, there's something real about it. It says, it's like the boys. Boys is actually making fun of superheroes, whereas mm. this is superhero shit, but uh, it's got uh, no, there's no comic book code authority telling you know that superheroes are good and they don't hurt people this is um yeah. your dad is superman turns out your dad is also uh from a race of um nazi space nazis who and he's only there on earth to uh weaken the planet so that the uh colonization can happen um come on son mm-hmm. get get with the program and so they have like a huge boss fight where, you know, the father's wailing on his son, knocking his teeth out, right? And it's like, that's really hardcore. And kids love it because yeah. it's genuine, right? It's like every, every kid wants to be his dad. Then he grows up a little and realizes his dad's not, you know, my, ba- my dad can beat up your dad. Right? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, well, my dad's good at art, but not hard. as good as I thought, you know, but he's, he's your hero. Dad. And then mm. turns out maybe he cheated on your mom. Oh my god! Right now, you have to choose sides. You, uh, right? Process that. Yeah. And yeah. so there's tons going on in that. But more importantly, Kirkman as a fa- you know was a comic book guy to begin with. He wasn't like a guy who uh, Robert Kirkman. He, he created The Walking Dead based on his comic books, and he did it independent. It was not. It's all through Image Comics. And he got so big, he's he's so rich from his comics uh, getting turned into TV shows. Like when I, when I talked to the guy at the comic book store, he says like Kirkman saved comic books. Like mm. he got so big, but he never forgot where he came from. He still loves comic books. He's still making comic books, and he's trying out new stuff all the time. And and he knows how to market. Like he he thinks about how he wants to market his own shit. So. All of The Walking Dead came out in black and white. And it just kept going like that. And he says, I'm never going to end it. Right? I'm never going to end The Walking Dead. I will make it until I die. And then he, he lied to us. 
Because he, he did end it. He did end it. And he, he's going, he, you know, it's just a regular issue, right? Comes out. And you've, you turn to the last page of it. It says the end. And the thing is, is in the, the way comic book industry works, they book months ahead. So you mm. put in orders for comics that he knew he was not going to be making. Just to keep that oh. awesome thing happening, right? That betrayal makes the thing good. And then, you know, I, I was always wondering, like, oh, wh- when are the, is this going to come out in color? It's so big now. When is it going to come out in color? He ended it. And then, like, six months later, he's like, we're doing it in color now. We're doing the whole run entire. Like, it's just like he's selling the exact same package in color. So yeah. all the people who bought it in black and white have to buy it again, right? And it, great for the comic book stores. Great for, like, he's so smart at marketing because he knows the industry. He knows what he wants, what he personally yeah. wants. And, and so he, when you re, when you watch that show, he's got a huge deep bench of superheroes and superhero lore mm. that barely gets touched on. Like there's like three frames of somebody's backstory when they, they're getting their head smashed in, right? Like he's like mm. he's like having his life flash before his eyes. It turns out that he was Lincoln. It's like what? I have a freeze frame. I don't remember that. Yeah, it was in there. Like <laughs> he's a character called the Immortal, right? And he's like a Celtic hero or whatever. Actually, it's kind of related to this show. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going yeah, on. I've seen the first like three or four episodes of. But you haven't seen Invincible. him. It, it, I need it. I you haven't seen the twist, going. right? Yeah, because his dad. Is evil. He kills the he well, kills the legion of superheroes or whatever they are. I think it's um, because the the big reveal has become a meme, right? Right. <laughs> of that sh- show, so it's almost spoiled before sure. you get into it. But I so I, but I was thinking it's about like his dad's Superman, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, so like, but it's got a bit more of that real realistic vibe to it, where like if you're Superman, how could you not be a narcissist or indeed. a psychopath? Indeed. You are just you. You're just like uh, God surrounded by ants, um, right? That's so what. That's, that's how the boys does it too, right? That's uh, how. What, you've what seen the show called The Boys? It's also a Prime show. Uh, I know it, but I haven't seen any of it. Okay, there's a, a character who's the Superman equivalent there. Um, he like has laser beam eyes, right? Mm. And he he acts like he's good. But he's super fucking twisted up inside and, you know, evil. Mm. He's a rapist um, and he kills people. It is hardcore. It's hardcore shit. And the thing is, is that's not for kids. Like it's it's just Mm. not it doesn't appeal to kids because it's not the right. They they want that. You know, I'm strong like my dad. I could Mm. I could grow up to have powers, you know, (laughs) Like that. Mm-hmm. This is no, this is, um, they, that's in the background, but this is for the cynics like me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's, um, it's very, uh, I mean, it's very Watchmen ish as well. I was thinking, yeah, the, yeah, it's the same the stuff. Blue, blue guy in the Watchmen. Yep. Who's similar. Who's Dr. Just, like, Manhattan. Who's humanity slowly. Yeah. Because, um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Do we want to get yeah. cracking on? Yeah. This episode, I'm just going to go to the bathroom and yep. I'll be back. Get rid of then, some of that coffee. Right. Back you in the st- tip. You still with us, Evan? Yeah. I don't have much to add on that. Yeah, not having Prime, you can't watch um, that show, Invincible. It's, uh, you just have to become a pirate and get arrested and thrown in jail. And 
Guantanamo and all that stuff. I heard uh, Israel is is wanting to vaccinate the elderly for a third shot. Yeah, I heard something about that. It's um, it's fucked up. <laughs> I don't want to live this way for the rest of my life. Yeah, we're, we're maybe I'll never get to Taiwan. Uh, no, I, I expect they'll have some window for you, but uh, Paul's going crazy. I got with all my his... documents, but the consulate's not doing it. I, I guess I can't say consulate will offend the Chinese. It's uh, their representative office here in Chicago. The, their foreign mission here doesn't mm-hmm. isn't, isn't allowed to do visas. So you have to go to New York or something, right? No, it's all of them. They're just not processing visas now. Hmm. Like, I guess if you had a visa, you could you could still come. But on a resident visa, you can't come on a tourist visa. That's the way it's been for like a year. You can't come to Taiwan on a tour on a tourist visa. But you can come on resident visas. But now you can't even get a resident visa, which I need. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know what you're gonna do until things change. Sit here. Yeah. I don't know. Finally, I got a Warren Chase book. He's a Wisconsin guy, so this might be a good. Yeah, that to do that it. one's not gonna sell at all because he's not a name. Unless suddenly, you know, some <laughs> some assassin screams out his name as <laughs> as he shoots Kamal Harris. <laughs> it may not sell, but I think it's such an interesting. Uh, Guy, uh, you it, it, he was like, you do you. This, this orphan, his dad was a War of eighteen twelve general, but he like he, you know, he was a bastard and apprentice to this really cool master. He runs away, he gets taken in by a lawyer, and he kind of learns to read. And he gets educated with them, and then he goes off to the west and starts this utopian socialist community in Wisconsin, which was successful. Yeah, you're telling me and, it sounds like a, he's got a great story, but and. Later, he was a Republican. He was this, uh, like one of the, he was actually at the first Wisconsin Constitutional Convention and he was really pushing for, uh, a pretty radical constitution, like, uh, you know, protecting homesteads, uh, giving black people the right to vote. That was one thing he fought for in the convention. That sounds like a populist. And, yeah, and, and he wrote a book called The, uh, the American Crisis, I, th- I think, uh, which is a short little pamphlet, really. But he was arguing that the Civil War is really, uh, you know, conflict over. Well, it's about, in addition to being one about labor, it's one about land. So he kind of connected labor and land together in that book and argues basically for uh, something like the Homestead Act, but more universal for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so he did all that. Then he became a spiritualist. He must have got his, he started reading the spiritualist. Save it for the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot going on in this story, man. It's a it's a weird book. I had to I had to read it twice. First because it, that ending was so abrupt. Yeah. Uh, so did you get the new ending? Yeah, I listened to the second okay. time and I'm like, that I've got a glitch. Uh, it really just ended there. Yeah, no, it was. And then I found out there was missing like three minutes. Yeah. Uh, we took, hmm, yeah. So the end of the file, I fu- either I fucked up your file or you didn't send me the complete story. But I'm gonna oh, just I don't send. Know. Yeah. Uh, in either case, I've got I've got the ending, um, and it's on your YouTube video, so it's not like the, it's it's not like this public, right? 
you're missing the ending. Um, no, no, no. I hope not. <laughs> and it's only like, um, it, it is like the last paragraph, basically. Uh, let me just uh, uh, dig out where I I put it online already, but I, I, I processed the, um, the whole uh, issue. Yeah. Or not uh, issue. Yeah, that's not... Um, uh, the that's actual publication. That... Watcher by yeah. the threshold. Here it is. So this might make us crash. We'll see. All right, so this is from the Atlantic Monthly, um, December 1890, no, 1900. And um, the only thing I think missing from, I think it's not in your version, uh, it's 13 pages long, is mm. a footnote um, about the... I may just save this for the podcast. Yeah, no, I'd be interested in hearing it's that. I don't think I page. read this one. Five of my version or 51 of their counting. Okay. Uh, I won't read it. You bring it up in the podcast sure. so I can have a fresh view of sure. it. And, it's uh, not that exciting anyways, but it's just okay. a little, it's a little something. All right. I'm turning on the light and checking my recorder. All right. Uh, why don't we get started? Okay. You ready, right. Evan? Here we go. Yeah.